Welcome to Nanny Og's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 13, Men at Arms and Theater of Cruelty. We've got like a two-for-one here. My creative writing teacher used to call this a twofer. A double-double. A double-double, as it were. So before we start talking about Men at Arms and Theater of Cruelty, I wanted to, t- to shout out a couple of things that have happened on our Twitter account lately, since we haven't talked very much about our Twitter account. For those of you who are interested, we have a Twitter profile at Nanny's Book Club, and we love hearing from you, dear listeners, about your read-through of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels, anything about Terry Pratchett, really at all. We're, we're, we're very uh, grateful for you all, and we're very grateful to hear what things that you're doing with this material. And I just wanted to let you know, Nigel, because I don't know if you've looked at the Twitter account recently, but this past week, we were actually tweeted at by the T24 Drama Society from the University of Kent, UK. They just put on a production of Terry Pratchett's Mort that was adapted by Stephen Briggs. Ah, Kent. Yeah. <laughs> have you been to Kent? I have not. No, I've not, but um, Kent is a character in King Lear that I like. Yeah, it looked really cool. I, I sent you the link, I think, a couple of days ago. And, I, I you know, it's kind of odd because Mort is not the first Terry Pratchett book that I would have thought of as adaptable material. But I kind of would be curious to know how Stephen Briggs adapted it, what parts of it how how it would look on the stage like basically i really wanted to go to this this particular performance yeah it was on yesterday and st patrick's day and so there was no hope of me going on st patrick's day no but it's also like i don't know stephen briggs he's probably well suited to it he's done stuff he did stuff with pratchett in the past so he probably like knows a thing or two does that stephen Yes, he has even co-authored some stuff with with Terry Pratchett, not Discworld stuff, although he has also done a lot of like Discworld paratextual work, which I think is really interesting as well. So yeah, uh, Stephen Briggs, if anyone was going to do it, Stephen Briggs would be an excellent choice. Yeah, so uh, Stephen Briggs, if you are listening, which we know you are, this is an invitation to come on the show and talk about all things Pratchett if you want to. But we know you're listening. Or, or really anything. I mean, if Stephen Briggs wanted to come on and talk about whatever he wanted to talk about, we would, we would have that conversation with him, for sure. Oh, yeah. Definitely. We also had a comment from one of our longest listening fans, at Florian Judith. At Florian Judith has been with us since the very beginning, has posted a lot of really encouraging stuff on our Twitter. So thank you so much, at Florian Judith for listening to us for so long and putting up with this. They commented, I love this episode. I will have to wait a bit to listen to the next one as I am currently rereading Lords and Ladies. I try to follow the publishing order and then asked, why do you choose to skip certain books? So we've mentioned this before on this podcast and I I responded to them on Twitter as well that the reason why we're not going in publication order for at least the first few books, is because I know a lot of people are sort of put off by the intense sword and sorcery focus 
of the first few books. So I really wanted to lay it out in a way that was easily accessible for new readers while also trying to stick to the basic chronological groupings. But the good news is that by the time we get to soul music here in a couple of books, we will be back to publication order. So for those of you who are reading in publication order, we will have all of those episodes available and you can listen to them in whichever order you want. Whatever order you're going on with in your read through, whether that's publication order or if you're trying to go branch by branch, which I know certain people do, you should be able to follow it in that way here in a few episodes. But let's go ahead and dive right in. We're going to start today with Theater of Cruelty, since I read that one first. Theater of Cruelty was published in 1993. It is a very, very short story, only a couple of pages long. I I think it's not even a thousand words. But it derives from the concept of Antonin Autod, Theater of Cruelty. It was written for W.H. Smith Bookcase Magazine, and then it was slightly modified and extended and published again in Oricon 15, and then again in Wizards of Odd, which was a a compilation of fantasy short stories. And and then where I read it is sort of its final home in Terry Pratchett's A Blink of the Screen, which has most, if not all, of the Discworld short stories, and that's where I'm going to be reading most of them for this podcast. However, you can find Theater of Cruelty online fairly easily. In fact, I believe that there's a copy available on LSpace, which is the Pratchett fan website. So if you're having a hard time finding it and you don't want to buy a blink of the screen yet, that would be a good place to find it. I paired this with Men at Arms because it came out the same year as that novel. It involves the four core watch members from Guards Guards, and it appears to take place before the expansion of the watch, which occurs at the end of Men at Arms. Quick summary... Vimes, Carrot, Colin, and Nobby investigate the murder of a street entertainer. It's a very straightforward concept. Nigel, what were your first thoughts about Theater of Cruelty? My first thoughts were, oh, I wish this were longer. Because, like, it's good. Because it's meant to be kind of like a murder mystery, but you can't really do a murder mystery in four pages. I mean, maybe you can't. It didn't work as well for me, but, like, I did enjoy parts of it it was like this is a very bizarre british thing you know as well tying it into the concept of punch and judy shows i was going to specifically ask you about that because the introduction to this short story pratchett says it works best if your culture includes at least folk memories of punch and judy i obviously know what punch and judy is from british pop culture although i've never actually seen a punch and judy show Do you want to tell our listeners, maybe from the States, what Punch and Judy is and why this story plugs into that in some way? I mean, like, Punch and Judy is, it's it's a puppet show where, you know, like, you see them in films and stuff where it's like the little covered stage thing and the person is hiding down below it and he sticks his arms up with the puppets on it that do things. That's basically like archetypical Punch and Judy. Punch and Judy are the characters, they're married, and Punch is a rather angry man who likes to hit Judy, and vice versa. There's a lot of hitting involved, and so that's the whole thing spawning from, like, what if they were real people? 
Right, like they're gnomes in this, not puppets. Which I'm not... That's another thing where it's like, I wish they had expanded on that concept more. Yeah, it's like the most interesting thing happens at the end of the story, and then it's like, well, I kind of want to know more about this Punch and Judy. Can I ask, how does the alligator fit into it? I've never heard of an alligator associated with Punch and Judy. That's a new one on me, but like, it might just be that this is something that Pratchett has added for, you know, like, you know, it's a zany version of... Although our friends at Google.com will tell us if I put in Punch and Judy alligator. Oh, there is an alligator puppet. Is there? That's bizarre. Yeah, Punch has a string of sausages in one image, and it's trying to steal the sausages. People also ask, why is there a crocodile in Punch and Judy? In any case, the crocodile's role is to avenge the deaths of everyone Punch has killed. He's Punch's comeuppance for his evil ways. Punch is generally eaten, or at least bitten by the crocodile. Whether Punch survives the encounter is the prerogative of the puppeteer. I love that. That's so fun. It that almost reminds me of like Captain Hook and the crocodile in Peter Pan, like the way that the crocodile is sort of this constant like comeuppance for Hook, like he's going to get eaten by the end. Like to me, it, it's not even because like the crocodile doesn't feel like a comeuppance to Hook for me. It's just like, oh, this happens, you know, because it feels like they're not linked. Whereas I don't know whether you've heard Old Gods of Appalachia. I have not. It's a horror podcast. In it, there's the there's this spirit called the boy, which is just like a spectral ghost boy who walks around with a lantern in hand. He shows up at the house of all the people who work in the mining companies. And he's like symbolic. He's a, a, a malevolent spirit, but he takes that form to represent all the boys who die working in their minds, you know, through bad working conditions and shit. That's what it reminded me of. Like, he's there, he's representative of all the people that he's killed. But I also really like, because especially now that I'm after looking into the crocodile, like, I would have liked, like, Theater of Cruelty could easily have been its own book. Yes, I agree. That's what I think. And because especially it ties in with a lot of, especially in the Watch series, but in Discworld overall, where... You know, like, the croc- whether whether Punch dies by the crocodile is up to the prerogative of the puppeteer. And then, you know, he wears the, oh, what is it, the, the, the spot, the, fu- the thing he puts in his throat, what's that called again? The swazzle. Swazzle, yes. You know, oh, he didn't like our own voices, so he had to do it himself. You know, like, you're taking away agency of these, uh, of these gnomes in this case. And the real villain here is the puppeteer who's making Punch and Judy and the and the alligator and the uh, there's a dog too I think. Yeah. He, he's making them reenact this like very violent abusive. I mean even though it's played a little bit differently in the Punch and Judy context, he's making them reenact this scenario over and over and over again. And it really like the way that the gnomes talk about it at the end it feels a lot like a like human trafficking or gnome trafficking situation. There ought to be some labor laws here for the for the gnomes, basically on on mm. what can and can't be done to them and how they get compensated because they don't get compensated for this either. It's really fascinating the way in which Punch is not the villain of this story, and he's usually the villain of the story. It's it's the pup the puppeteer. 
Yeah, in this context, it makes sense, but it's also like, you just need to be careful when you're reading that, that you're not like viewing it as sort of a rehabilitation of abusive men in relationships. And that's not what I think the story is doing, but like, you need to be careful because it's, oh, you know, it'd be far too easy to view the puppeteer as an allegory for like, outside factors where it's like oh you know like i wasn't loved as a child and that's why now you know like you see that in media and stuff they try and explain a lot of male characters abusive characteristics away as you know being shunned as a child by parents or school peers it would be an interesting like examination of the book you know like if you had a full-length book to do it um that kind of like taking away of voices and i don't know I don't know whether Discworld is equipped to do, like, you know, storylines around domestic violence um, for a whole book. I think that this story, though, strips the domestic violence out of the Punch and Judy storyline because the Punch, who is not called Punch, is called a little man here, right? Like, none of these are actually called Punch and Judy. They're just supposed to be referential. He made Mm. us do it, said the little man. He had a surprisingly deep voice. He used to beat us, even the alligator. That was all he understood, hitting things with sticks. And he used to take all the money the dog Toby collected and get drunk. And then we ran away, and he caught us in the alley and started on Judy and the baby, and he fell over, and and then they, you know, all basically beat him to death. And so, like, to me, it doesn't read as domestic. Punch does not read as a domestic abuser here. He reads as someone trying to protect his family. Like, the puppeteer is the one who's doing all of the abuse in this story. So, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. I liked the contrast, because isn't Punch's voice, like, really high-pitched in the oh, yeah. in the show? So I like the contrast, that like, his real voice is actually, like, really deep. Like, it's fun. I don't know, it's funny enough, but I just keep coming back to the theme of taking voices away and who gets to speak and who doesn't, and who... Mm-hmm gets to tell their own story. And, like, this is a bigger problem in, like, representations of indigenous cultures and, you know, like, the suffering of people of color throughout America, you know. But, like, in a fantasy setting, in a fantasy setting, it's easier nearly to have that kind of conversation because you can have magic take the voice away and things like that, you know. Like, so Mm -hmm. if you wanted to, if you wanted to conduct a conversation on that idea. A fantasy book is a good place to have it because you're 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 like you're one step away from the world, like from the real world. You know, you're in this case you're in a, a discarded secondhand set of dimensions. That's just what I keep coming back to that there were like I just wish there was more time to explore what I think are some really interesting themes in um Theater of Cruelty. Right. And it's funny that the gnomes want to start like experimental theater and they don't want to hit each other anymore or throw babies to crocodiles. And I love that Carrot is aghast. He's like, you did that for children. And then he's like, people will never stand for it. That's not the way to do it. But of course, we know that Punch and Judy is an incredibly popular cultural institution. So we get a little bit more of Carrot's naivete, I guess, in this at the end of this, where he's like, this is a show for children? How? Yeah, well, I mean, as well, like, they say in um, Men at Arms, 
he's simple, but like that shouldn't be confused for being stupid. He's simple in the same way that like a sword is simple. Like it just is. And we're going to talk about Carrot and Men of Arms. I just think it's really interesting that he's just like, he's the one who doesn't believe that they thought that he, he doesn't believe that people would actually watch this show, much less show it to their children. And so there's like this deep mm. irony. If you know about Punch and Judy, well, yeah, it's incredibly popular and children watch it all the time, right? Children watch a lot of violent things all the time. <laughs> we also get some really big watch motifs. We get the beginning of something that will be explored more at, in Men at Arms and in Feet of Clay. The introduction of the whodunit genre into the watch, because this starts with this is basically about the investigation of a murder and all four of the main characters find clues. Right. And they have to put the clues together in order to understand what happened. It's not quite the same investigation or satire of the whodunit that we're going to get in Men at Arms because the story is so short. But we do get Carrot interviewing a witness who is death there is one death sighting in theater of cruelty what did you think about carrots it's so good yeah i loved that i thought it was so fun but like out of everyone out of all of the characters in the disc world like it makes sense that carrot would interview death like he's a witness he's a witness <laughs> And it's also, it's really funny because it's like, you know, like the whole concept of the locked room mystery where there, there's no one there or like Agatha Christie's silent witness or no, the silent patient. That's the other one I was thinking of. The new one by Alex Michaelides. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce it. I think it's a Greek name. Michaelides. Um, I'm not sure. But that kind of thing where it's like, it's rendered completely you know, useless if you can just interview death. And it like it goes back to then as well, like my when I brought up how carrot is simple but not stupid, like carrot is kind of like this moral line about which everything falls. And he's it's a it, it, like it's a really distinct kind of like black or black or white thing. Carrot doesn't see in all of, like, he doesn't see the shades of grey that Ankh Morpork is, like, basically created in. You know, like, it, things either are or they aren't, whatever it is. And it's, you know, it's refreshing and it's simple. And so it's like, well, yeah, Death saw it. So, of course, he's going to interview Death. Because, like, I don't know, he's memorized the rule book, And there's probably some stipulation that they never repealed in Ankh Morpork law that said Death can be called as a witness to the stand or... You know, something like that. I think Carrot, of all the characters outside of the actual death books, because there's characters that are, of course, a little bit more attuned with the supernatural than Carrot is. But of all of the characters in the watch books, Carrot seems the most... He doesn't not believe things just because they're not supposed to have happened, right? He's like, well, no, like this death death would be a witness to this right nobody else would think of interviewing death but of course he would think of it so yeah i i appreciated that as well yeah no it's just like as well i've mentioned it in one of the previous episodes i'm not sure which one off the top of my head but it's like how the humor in De uh, discworld works where pratchett will take like a phrase and take it extremely literally 
but then he's taken the concept of like the locked room mystery and exposed it to like the most far reaches of knowledge or not of knowledge, sorry, of logic, you know, where it's like, if death is a personified thing, then in theory, he's there or whatever collects your soul. Right. How would a whodunit work in a universe in which death is a anthropomorphic personification? Would not work like it does here on Earth, right? Oh my god, I had a terrible pun idea. Uh, death is an anthropomorphic. <laughs> 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 it doesn't. It doesn't work because the syllables are too long. It's a little bit too like it's yeah, yeah it's an- anthropomorphic, but like it's too long. But you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. I do. So, uh, anything else you want to say before I wrap up Theater of Cruelty? Uh, wish it was longer. Wish it was longer. Yeah, I do too. I thought it was a really good premise. I, but there's not really time for anything more than just a premise. Yeah. So, I, I wish that there was more of because it. Because especially like when he interviews Death, I was just like, I looked at the length of the story and I was like, yeah, that's not going to end up being, that, that's not going to continue on, is it? You know, like, you know, you know, when they do something for like a special episode of a show or whatever, and you're like, oh, that's just not going to connect to anything. They're just doing that. I just feel the same way about it as I do the mall plotline in Reaper Man, where it's like, this could have been its whole other book. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So just to wrap it up, as I we mentioned, there was one death sighting. Death is interviewed by Carrot. He helps with the investigation, as it were. There is one footnote and one footnote only. The footnote is pretty standard. It wasn't easy being the senior policeman in Ankh-Morpork, the greatest of cities of the Discworld, footnote, which is flat and goes through space on the back of an enormous turtle, and why not? So that's a bit of world building for anyone who wasn't familiar with the Discworld, which I feel like short stories that are part of a larger uh, franchise or series of books, they often have to do this where they have to establish what the rules or what the framework for the series is because they might be read by someone in a collection who is unfamiliar with like the, the bigger world. So, you know, it's the footnote works pretty well in that sense. There are no sort references. Uh There's no references to the pyramids of sort. Damn it. Unfortunately. No, just that footnote is doing like is doing what it's supposed to do, which is something that we complained about in color of magic, which is that, Every single one of the, the the stories in Color of Magic constantly reintroduce you into in the same book. But whereas those weren't published in separate magazines, Theater of Cruelty was published outside of the context of the, it being a Discworld thing. It was just in these collections. Right. So, like, it makes sense, but it didn't in Color of Magic. Right. Was there anything that made you laugh out loud in Theater of Cruelty? Not because it was funny. It's not a funny short story. I don't think it has room to be funny. But, like, when I... Carrot was like, oh, do you know anyone who's old and is very sick? And I was like, okay, I don't know where this is going. And then it saw death. And I was like, ah! Like, that kind of... Oh, that's... That's quite funny. Yeah. I, I liked the part where it was like, there were probably worlds, Captain Vimes mused in his gloomier moments, where there weren't wizards who made locked room mysteries commonplace, or zombies. Murder cases were very strange when the victim could be the chief witness, and where dogs could be relied to do nothing in the nighttime and not go around chatting to people. 
Captain Vimes believed in logic in much the same way as a man in the desert believes in ice, i.e. it was something he really needed, but this just wasn't the place for it. I thought that was very funny because it, it does... I, it does make those like references to the whodunit genre, right? Like, how would you have a closed room mystery with a wizard, or how would you investigate a murder if the, the there was a zo- if the corpse was actually a zombie and could talk about what happened? You know, it, it reminded me a lot of the Rincewind stuff from Color of Magic oh, and the Light Fantastic, yeah, where he talks about Doctor Professor Rincewind. <laughs> not specifically that although it plugs into it a little bit but the idea that Rincewind wants a world that's more logical and more scientific mm. and less magical it seems like vimes might be more closely aligned with Rincewind in that way actually if you want locked room mysteries with wizards i'd recommend the skulldogri pleasant series oh, okay um yeah it's really interesting the way that they just bring up that like the discworld isn't the only world constantly Despite the fact that, like, no one ever seems to believe it. Like, everyone is like, oh god, wouldn't it be great? And then you have the narration, or when they go to, like, the dungeon dimension, where the dungeon dimension creatures are in equal rights, and they see all the different worlds. They're like, ah, that's, that's nothing, you know? It's, it's this weird case of everyone's got their blinkers on. Right. And they're like, well, all the water would fall off a round world. (laughs) <laughs> did anything make you think in this short story i know it was very short so maybe not but i was just curious the concept uh, again I-, I mentioned this of you know taking the voice away from someone especially in because sometimes you get this in um, murder mysteries i'm waving a small katana around as i'm talking it's very funny it's a letter over <laughs> I have. you know because it'd be like the person will be killed uh, you know in a crime of passion as punishment for like something terrible they've done to another human being you know like and so that that you know they felt voiceless and alone because of what the person has done and so now you physically have this representation where he's taking their voice away and he's using the swazzle you know i thought that was very interesting and again i'm gonna say it i wish it was longer that should just be a (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt i wish it was longer (laughs) yeah that's our phrasing moment I thought that the whole thing about Carrot saying, like, why do we, like, the whole thing about, like, this was a show for children and people would never stand for it, it it just got me thinking, why do we stand for it? Why do we show children these shows or these stories that are just, like, I mean, like, Punch and Judy is about domestic abuse. And, like, it got me thinking about all the other, like, children's content that we just sort of accept as, like, Oh yeah, this is like classic children's stuff, but it's like, well, like Babar, it's like, that's classic children's stuff. Well, it's about colonialism. Like, it's actually incredibly racist. You know, like things like that. Like, why do we, why do we show these things to children? Yeah. All right, let's discuss Men at Arms. So Men at Arms is the 15th Discworld novel and the second City Watch novel. It was published in 1993, same year as Theater of Cruelty. It continues the narrative of Watch Restoration and the noir that began in Guards Guards. I don't believe that there have been any adaptations of Men at Arms, but I did find a review of the novel by Brandon Sanderson, who praised it enthusiastically. That review is from 2006 on Brandon Sanderson's blog. So that was a really cool, like, Brandon Sanderson has read Terry Pratchett. I mean, and why wouldn't he? It's just, you know, you never think about these people in the same context. I mean, it makes sense. 
Yeah, especially because the second era of Mistborn feels an awful lot like Ankh-Morpork. It's a city which is, like, on the verge of Industrial Revolution. You know, that that kind of steampunk Victorian era. And the second one is, they're both detectives. Wax and Wayne, you know, so they, they are solving it. So I could definitely see it being kind of like a thematic influence, the the watchbooks. Yeah, he, he was very effusive in his praise for this book. So, short summary... Captain Vimes is getting married to Lady Sybil Rampkin, the richest woman in Ankh-Morpork. Days before his wedding and retirement, there is a mysterious theft from the Assassin's Guild, allowing Vimes to work one final case. This case is not as it seems, however, and as dead bodies start to pile up, Vimes, Carrot, Colin, and Nobby, along with some new diversity hires, must solve it before Ankh-Morpork is torn apart. What were your first thoughts on this novel? I love this novel. I love The Watch. The Watch books, I think, have the best overall cast of characters, like, especially when you get out to the supporting characters, because, like, Death is great, but Death sometimes isn't paired up with the best characters to read in his books, and because it's also, like, him on his own a lot of the time. Death is so good on his own that when he's beside most people, it doesn't really, you know, compare. Like, I don't know, like, the witches are all, like, the three witches are great, but it's like, a lot of the supporting characters are just kind of meh. But all of the supporting characters in The Watch, and I think that's maybe just because they're in Ankh-Morpork, and I love Ankh-Morpork. Ankh-Morpork, almost more than anywhere else, feels like a fully realized world. And that's not to like say that Lanker isn't cool, a cool place or that Death's house isn't a cool place or anything like that. But there's just a lot more going on in Ankh-Morpork. And the way that the Watch characters interact with their setting, I think, works better than almost any other book that I've read. And also, I just, I love murder mysteries. And the fact that he's like, the Pratchett has made it work in a fantasy setting. It's so good. Like, the investigation in Guards Guards into, like, who was actually controlling the dragon. Like, that was good, and I was like, God, I want more of this. And, oh, it, he did not disappoint. He basically, like, this nearly feels like a Reacher plot, you know? It feels like, like, um, Killing Floor, nearly, the one that they adapted into... Or is it Killing Floor or One Shot that they adapted into the first... The Killing Floor. I haven't read the Jack Reacher books, but I have been watching the series, and they always say at the beginning, adapted from The Killing Floor. Well, no, because The Killing Floor is one, but that's like the first one chronologically, but not the first one published. Actually, we could do a whole podcast on the Jack Reacher books. That would be awful. (laughs) Okay, you have one year, I believe, until we're done with the Discworld to decide which series that you want me to read you can only pick one <laughs> i don't know yeah because as well with, with the jack reacher books it's like the first one that they adapted killing floor or the first one that they did it's like it's got a lot of information in it and so like i know way too much now i haven't seen the series but i know way too much about how the u.s prints its money and the fact that it's not printed on paper it's printed on a special type of cloth it's very much the Herman Melville, Victor Hugo thing of like, I learned a lot about this topic and you're going to hear about it. (laughs) (laughs) 
This book definitely leans more heavily into the whodunit genre of storytelling. Like, Guards Guards had elements of that. Like, there's been a murder committed and it's with a dragon. But this feels a lot more like a classical there is this murder and then there's this other murder and you have to figure out who's doing it before, you know, there's civil unrest. So yeah, it did. It felt a lot more like a classic detective on the case type of storytelling than guards guards, not too much more, just it leans more heavily into it. I think it likes to play with the genre a lot more too. Uh, to answer my earlier question, uh, the film with Tom Cruise from 2012 is adapted from the book One Shot, whereas Killing Floor is the series. After watching the show, I'm sitting here going, who thought that Tom Cruise would be a good fit for this role? Like, I haven't even read the books and I know that he's not a good fit. He's not a good fit, but he does try his best. Like, oh he's, yeah, I he's mean, surprisingly this isn't a critique of this isn't a critique of Tom Cruise, who's a very good actor. He just doesn't fit. It's a miscast. He doesn't fit the role. Yeah, just like with the first book, this book has like a twist at the end, which is not always something that the disc world is invested in. A lot of times, it's like here's the villain, and you know we're going to follow this villain throughout the whole book. But the watch books are very interested in this idea of some twists and turns, like somebody is not who they appear to be. So the person that we're introduced to at the beginning of the book, Edward Deeth, which is obviously a pun on death, right? His, sorry, his last name actually looks like death with an extra letter. He is introduced like he's going to be the primary antagonist of this book. He's obsessed. He's a, he's a down on his luck aristocrat who went to the Assassin's Skills School, he discovers that Carrot is the long-lost king of Ankh-Morpork, and he is determined to create a situation in which Carrot needs to become king, is forced to become king again, because he thinks that that will solve all of the city's problems. He then steals the gun, which I want to talk about, and uses it to create... We think he's going to use it to create this series of unrest by killing these different people, but it turns out that he actually died somewhere halfway between in the book. Like he actually died at some point during the story, and it's actually the head of the assassin's guild, Doctor Crucis, who is doing these killings intentionally with the gun. What did you think about sort of the twists and turns of this plot? I mean, I genuinely wasn't expecting it to be someone different because there's a line shortly after he steals the gun and I know it's meant to be like, it's meant to be gun and that's how you're meant to read it as, or gone, which that's what I thought it was first before I realized that they were doing the like medievalized spelling of it, like the Chaucerian, Spencerian English. So I suppose it would be uh, gone, the gone. The gone. That it was, yeah, the gone, that the carrot that was left there just was, like, gone. And, like, they're gone, and this was, like, some mystical assassin shit, and I was, like, up for that, and then I realized it was a gun, and I was like, oh, I'm also up for this shit. But there's a line, like, shortly after Edward De... Also, Edward Deeth, really? Or Deeth? Like, like, you may as well have called him Gun Death Punch Facenstein. 
<laughs> well, so I actually looked this up. Deeth is actually an existing old English name. Like they are a family that came over with William the Conqueror and apparently had this thing where the Saxon peasants kept mispronouncing their name as death instead of Deeth, which is how it was supposed to be pronounced. And so they would get very angry if you mispronounce their name. So it's supposed to be like a play on that, but that's a really obscure historical reference for him to be making. Yeah. But the line where it's like, you know, where it basically says like he was taken over and the thing that used to be Edward Deeth, you know, like left the room or whatever. So I thought, oh, he's just been surrendered mind and body to this. He's been taken over. And we've seen things kind of like that with like how summoning the dragon worked in guards guards or like the thing from the the things from the demon dimension trying to take over takes over simon briefly and speaks through him that's what i thought it was and so the reveal that it was actually dr crucis was really uh, like i thought it was really well done because they do because then when you think about it uh and especially when like angua and stuff talk about how you can smell gunpowder um in the, you know, in the Assassin's Guild, and you're like, oh, okay, but the gun hadn't been fired there. And so you're like, oh, shit, yeah. Like, you know, all this stuff, it was it was right there. And I suppose maybe I should ask, did you pick, like, did you see that coming when you read it first, back in, whenever you read it in? No, I did not. I did not see this twist the first time I read it, for sure. I, like you, just assumed that, Edward Deeth was like a serial killer that the gun had sort of taken over. Really, though, the gun or the Ghana is the villain of this, though. Like, it's like we get a couple of reveals. Like, the reveal is, is that Dr. Crucis is actually the one who's been killing all these people and he kills Edward Deeth, right? But then we also discover that the Ghana is like, has this almost one ring of power type of compulsion. It basically tells the person who's wielding it, like, I can solve all your problems. Like, it's almost too powerful, right? Like, at one point, I mm. think they actually say, with a spear or a sword, like, you you still have to use your own body to fight. Like, it's just an extension of your body. Whereas the Ghana makes it very easy to kill people. Obviously, gun control is a huge politically charged topic here in the u.s i don't know if it is there in ireland or in in england not really at all in ireland you can't have pistols uh only only like a specific branch of the guardy can have guns you can have license or you can have licensed rifles and shotguns because you know you can hunt animals uh in, you know in season here but there's no concealed carry type thing and the police openly carry. They have to openly carry uh, and display that they're wearing a pistol if they're part of the um, armed response unit. And I, it's pretty much the same um, in the UK, from what I understand. But here, obviously, like people can get guns very easily, like too easily, in my opinion. And they make it very easy for things like mass shootings to happen, which happen in the US almost every day now. And... I thought it was interesting that this was written in 93 from someone who is British, but he says something that is a big 
conservative talk. Well, he doesn't say it, but one of his characters says it. Uh, that's something that's a big conservative talking point when it comes to gun control in the U.S. Dr. Crucis says the Ghana doesn't kill people, people kill people. And I thought that that mm. was that that's like a really big talking point here when people try to say, oh, well, the guns aren't the problem. It's like mental health or whatever, which is complete and utter bullshit. But like, I just thought that was interesting that it felt like Pratchett was trying to have a conversation about gun control and how the Ghana makes it the Ghana overwhelms somebody with the ease in which it can make their dreams happen by killing someone. I thought that was really interesting. Um, for, first, it reminded me of Night Vale, where their sort of satirical take on the NRA bumper stickers and stuff is like just taking that conservative talking point to its like just complete and utter illogical extreme, you know. Shit like, uh, guns don't kill people, we are all immune to bullets and it is a miracle. But it also, like, it is interesting because, uh, and I'm thinking of when we were talking about Bond and about specifically Spectre, which my main problem was that it didn't commit to an awful lot of the ideas it raised where it's trying to tackle this, you know, concept of drone warfare. Uh, and I don't think the Discworld has ever uh, like, you know, obviously Terry Pratchett has sadly passed away, but I don't think it would ever entertain the notion of drone warfare. But that whole thing was like, oh, it's too impersonal. You need a man in the field to decide whether to pull the trigger or not. And then it's like, but why does he have a gun? And then Discworld is like, you need to be up close and personal and decide whether you want to swing your sword or not. And also because recently I watched the adaptation of uh, Critical Role's Vox Machina campaign, uh, the Briarwood arc, and it's very similar when Vimes picks up the gun and he's about to kill Dr. Crucis at the end where he, when he wants to and it's saying, do it, you know, make all your dreams come true. Are you aware of Critical Role? Like, have you listened to it? Watched the show? I have not. No. Okay, so, spoilers, I guess. Do you want spoilers? Yeah, I started listening to an episode of Critical Role every day last summer, and I'm now nearly up to date. I'm 118 episodes into Campaign 2. That's a, It was a big project I undertook. But Talison Jaffe's character in the first campaign is this guy called Percy Dorolo, and he's like... uh, He's a nobleman, and then these vampires, the Briarwoods, come in and they kill his family and they imprison and torture him and blah 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 and he escapes and he's filled with rage and guilt and you know all this emotion that he you know let his family die he didn't do enough they're taking over his ancestral home they still have his sister uh all this stuff and so he ends up making a deal with this de demonic entity orthax and they orthax helps him create a gun like, the first gun that's on the, like, in the world of Exandria. And it's called, it's called, like, the Powder Box. And then he has this one called the List, where on the barrels, it's a six-shooter. On each of the barrels, or, like, the, the, the chambers, it has someone's name in relation to it, uh, the, the people who took over. And so, like, he's, when his friends try and stop him, the demon is whispering in his ear, and it's like, you gotta take them out as well. And so it felt very much like that. 
But I think what's interesting as well is the revelation. There's a blank space on... There's five names on the gun. And then at the end, Percy's sister shows up. Her name shows up on the gun. But then it's really interesting because Matthew Mercer, the dungeon master, and Talison, who plays him, came up with this idea separately and never discussed one because the list ends up getting destroyed. Scanlan throws it in acid and it gets destroyed and uh, Orthax is freed because he's bound to the gun. But they were like, if he just had surrendered to it and killed everyone on the list, what would have happened? And they both came up with this idea that another six names would appear until they were killed and another six names and another six, this self-perpetuating cycle of like, I can make your dreams come true. Yeah, I can I can set all that is wrong with the world right. That's another thing that the the Ghana says. And, and actually, to correct myself from earlier, it's actually the Ghana that says that talking point that I mentioned earlier. Because Crucis is saying, like, how could you have killed the the beggar girl in the guild? And the Ghana says she was a target of opportunity. That was not my fault. That was your fault. I am merely the Ghana. Ghanas don't kill people. People kill people. So it is actually the Ghana itself that says that particular talking point, which, again, going back to what you really like about these books, the Ghana speaks in all italics. I can't decide if that means that it's like whispering or if it's like just a voice that you hear in your head. Yeah, I mean, like it does. There's no punctuation around it, right? There's no like quotation marks and stuff. So like it seems to be not vocalized. In the same way that death doesn't have quotation marks, it's just those capitals, but death's voice is one that you feel very much in its, it, it, like, in your core. It's always described as being heavy and dense, you know, like dark matter, like a neutron star, like the center of a nuclear core, stuff like that. So it would make sense if it's non-vocalized, but also the idea of it whispering. And I suppose I'm visualizing how Orthax shows up in the show, like, just on the edge of the, the peripheral, mm-hmm. you know, like, whispering in Percy's ear, that, it, like, you know, I also view it as that. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll keep returning to it as we go through the rest of this. But let's let's run through our characters, because really, I think, like you said, the strength of the watch lies in its characters, and all of these characters have different plot lines in this book that sort of tie together in the end. They're all picking up different clues to this mystery that sort of get put together at the end to figure out what the whole picture is. So let's start with Vimes, who is, of course, our noir detective stand-in. Vimes is getting married to Lady Sybil, and somebody, one of our our people on Twitter... One of our people. We've got people. One of our people. uh, One of our listeners on Twitter, Joseph Teveter, I think is how you say... Just listen to our Guards Guards episode and tweeted at us, in this podcast, you mentioned the portrayal of Sybil. I think that it is wonderful that she's a large woman. I think Pratchett does this to point out the absurdity that female roles are always played by sexy women. It is what sells, but in real life, few, in real life, few, that is not the case. I think it made Sybil more real and more likable as a character to make her a bald fat lady. And I think the point that is the point he is attempting to make. The leading lady does not need to be the standard model of femininity. I think that was one of the failures of the watch, the, the series, in which I think that they are referring to the television series. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure I was the one who said that in 
Did you, right? That like that was something I said my opinion of like the way. Right. Yeah, and it's also because like we did uh, Garrett's Guards was like our fifth episode, right? We did we did more than we did Weird Sisters, then we did Color of Magic, Light Fantastic, then we did Guards Guards, right? Yeah, Guards Guards is number five. Because I, I was kind of viewing that in isolation. Because if you haven't picked up already, I haven't read these books before, uh, and Tessa has, but. Like, I, that's my view, that was my view on Guards Guards in isolation, but I think to that point, like, it's interesting when you hold up uh, Lady Sybil beside Tracy from Pyramids, and, oh, what's her name? Dollar, uh, the, the, the lady from Moving Pictures. Ginger. Ginger, yeah, Ginger. I should have remembered that from Fred, like, Fred and Ginger. But, like, it's interesting when you compare those three, because they're both... Tracy and Ginger are meant to be kind of, like, really sexy femme fatales, nearly. And I suppose that's also, like, what the stories are doing. Like, Pyramids is meant to be... it. Like, I mean, we said it has very, you know, slightly weird Orientalist vibes at points. You know, and so she's, like, the sexy queen, like Cleopatra, kind of. Cleopatracy. Yeah, actually, it's prob- she's probably meant to be Cleopatra explicitly. I know she does the rug thing, but like Cleopatra and Patracy, it that's quite mm-hmm. similar. And then also Ginger is meant to be like the dame in a noir film or, you know, like a sexy leading lady in a 50s film, you know, so it makes sense. So like viewed against that, I do think Sybil is you know, is a demonstration that you can have a leading lady who isn't, you know, this kind of, like, Photoshop model beauty, really unhealthy kind of lifestyle to get that figure type heroine. Um, You know, like, you see the way that the modern actresses have to go through all that stuff to get their bodies to look a certain way. And I don't want to get into a whole critique of the fashion industry because it's, like, a fucking lot and I'd like to have a nice Saturday without having to think of the <laughs> the crushing yes, I, I agree. sense of the fashion industry. But it's good. I will also say, though, like, while I do, th- like, my opinion of it has improved somewhat, um, I do also think that it's probably not, like, like, it definitely could have been done slightly better in Guards Guards. Like, it just because there was far, there, there's a bit too many comments about Sybil's size. For me to be, mm. be to, to for me to like fully be like this is a genuine thing, you know, because they they brought it up at like basically every instance she was on, I was supposed to say on screen, but like you know, you know what I mean. Like they kept right. they kept bringing up this fact, and it's like we get it. Lady Sybil is a large lady, and. It's refreshing to see that there's, because well, dis like disability rep and representation of people outside of what fiction and society views as like main characters who are all meant to be these sexy buff hunk people if they're men and like voluptuous sexy ladies uh, if they're female presenting. Like, that's what they're meant to be. But, like, I, I mean, as well, I've seen stuff from The Last Hero, which has uh, someone in a wheelchair, correct? 
as one of yes. the main characters. So, like, Pratchett is definitely trying to go against the standards, but it's also, like, Gerd's Gerd's was written in the 80s, so I feel like maybe it's just, like, a weird, leery product of its time. Right, but especially in this book, there isn't as much of that. Like, she's still fat. She's still a fat character. She still, you know, has a different body type than what we would normally think of as, like, feminine attractiveness but we still see her as someone who isn't trying to lose weight which is a huge deal oh in yeah fat narratives right she's very comfortable with who she is and vimes is getting married to her like she is presented as a romantic interest in this way and she's very helpful in helping them determine how chubby was used in the in the theft that precipitates this whole series of events so I, I guess my first question about her is, what did you think about the continuation of Vimes and her relationship into Men at Arms and their marriage, which does happen in this book? They get married at the end of the book. I mean, you know I don't care about relationships. Right, and I'm going to ask you about two different ones this book. So, I'm, you know, if, if that's fine, that's fine. I was just curious if you had any thoughts. Like, there's, there's a but to this. Like, I don't care about relationships, but, like, it's a nice relationship. But also, like, in this one, like, the first one, Lady Sybil is, you know, she's kind of like a take-no-nonsense, no-holds-barred lady. And she's still that to an extent in this book, but she's also filling out the archetype of, like, the policeman's wife. Which is a very mm -hmm. specific thing. You see it an awful lot in, like, English crime dramas. Um, or English detective shows, you know. I'm thinking a lot of um, Mrs. Thursday in uh, the Endeavor show, which is a prequel to the Morse books uh, and the adaptation of that. That kind of stuff, like, th th there's always that kind of character, and they have this kind of discussion about Colin's wife, you know, where they basically never see each other. They basically never see each other because she's kind of like just grown tired of his odd hours uh, as part of the night watch. They write letters and she leaves out food for him and stuff. So, you know, they still care, but they're both both her and Lady Sybil to an extent in this book are filling out this archetype. And it's not bad. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's like an interesting thing that they have her in between. But then especially when you view it through the context of like what Vimes is experiencing in this book. And this is kind of what I want to get into. We talked a lot about, like, Discworld people and being assured of who they are and, like, you know, knowing who they are or constructing an identity as to who they are, learning to be happy with the situation they're in, like Windle Poons in um, Reaper Man or any of the, actually, Second Chance Club, like Red Shoe. Um, All of whom get a shout-out in this book. Sam Vimes, I, like, he can't exist without the watch. And I was like, they're gonna, like, I knew, when I was in, I was like, he's not gonna be gone from the rest of the books, hardly. Like, and I was, like, kind of upset by the thought he would. But there's an interesting line where, like, Carrot thinks that this is gonna be a great present. He's gotten him a watch. And, um, you know, like, a watch from your friends in the watch. And then... When it switches to Vimes' POV, he's talking about, like, oh, how everyone gets that. And all of the 
all of the, you know, all of the cops lead solitary, basically, lives where they only ever interact with other coppers. And there's no, there's only coppers at a copper's funeral. Which is, like, it's fucking depressing. Because, like, when they talk about the guy who was, the, who was captain before Vimes, they're like, oh, yeah, he just kept coming in and whatever. And then no one ever checked it checked in on him and like no one knew he died right yeah he just sort of took on a role in the office right because his whole life was the watch there was nobody else in his life and they didn't even know that until he died yeah and they check his room and they go like you know that it's completely bare and then we have the we have the reveal later that vimes's room is also completely bare with no ornamentation and then when they see Carrot's room later on, like, it's similar. It, like, it's getting there. And it's this nearly, like, self-perpetuating cycle of... Because, like, Death is good at his job, and he understands what he does. And that's what Death is. And Sam Vimes, he's a watchman through and through. But at the same time, like, as well, this book is about guns. And so, I don't know. It's a big problem in, in in America now, the way veterans are treated and post-traumatic stress disorder from, the like, you know, the theater of war. Like, that kind of thing where you just, you're left entirely alone with this experience that only a select group of people have if you're in that situation, and then you just die, uh, and you you live with all of that. Granted, there's a lot more of, like, moralizing in this one where it's like, you know, there's no good people in this. Everyone's kind of shit. But yeah, that was really fucking depressing. And then especially when they, when they go to Vimes' room and Angu is like, God, there's nothing here. Vimes is definitely having a crisis of identity, right? Because a lot of this book, for, for most of this book until the end, there's really a lot of questions about what's going to happen to the Night Watch without him and what's going to happen to him without the Night Watch. There's, it's sort of all in a state of flux for a lot of the book because he seems to be getting married and leaving the watch just because that's what you're supposed to do, but he doesn't know who he is without the watch. This is also very deeply connected with his struggle with alcoholism, which in the first book, we saw him as a full-blown functioning alcoholic or non-functioning alcoholic, depending on, on how you want to read the way his relationship with alcohol works in that first book. This book, we actually see him trying to quit alcohol. He he is sober for the first part of the book. It's, Sybil is also represented as being very instrumental in that process. Like she's trying to give him support. She gives him, you know, the cigars instead of the alcohol. She there's not really any like AA, I guess, in in, in the disc world. So he, he's, she's sort of his only support system when it comes to the alcohol, but he does relapse a couple of times in this book. Yeah. She's also taking, she's taking on one of the roles that is key to, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, like, like the mentor, mm. the, you know, like she's doing that just without him going to a meeting or getting a chip. So, right, exactly. I mean, it's just it's interesting that this book also doesn't it presents alcoholism in a way. I'm not an alcoholic, so I can't speak to how accurate this is, but it presents alcoholism in a way where it is hard to quit drinking if you're an alcoholic. It is something that isn't usually it's not usually something that you just turn off, right? 
he's not he just uh, he doesn't wake up one day and just decide to stop drinking like it is a process for him and it's really made more difficult by this deep depression that he has because he is a depressed character and the way that is in which that depression is triggered by this threat to his identity by having to leave the watch even though he clearly loves Sybil and he is very committed to the idea of marrying her that's never something that's in question it's like how does he get married to her and still have the watch identity I'm trying to put it into words with like the presentation of alcohol addiction because like this one it feels obviously they have that kind of like explanation where Sam Vimes is perpetually under drunk you know so he needs a, a drink or two to bring him up to the normal level of sobriety but at the same time like films when they show someone slipping into alcohol addiction they rarely ever like do it in a realistic way they're just like oh they're you know, oh, they're just drinking a lot and whatever. There's so few of them actually, like, engage with what it does to a person and the way that ruins their relationship with people around them and how it screws with their, you know, like, how they perceive themselves, things like that. Like, like it's something that they just basically turn to for, like, a plot beat to show mm. that a character is down and, oh, they're just you know, drinking constantly. Whereas this one, it's like, cause like the opening scene of guards, guards is it's, you know, it's the noir scene of the, um, you know, the detective at a bar or like, you know, gone with the wind of all the bars, you know, she had to walk into this, that kind of like setup, but it, it sticks with it. It sticks with it for what's probably an uncomfortably long amount of time where you need to like grapple with this set, you know, with this sense that, this character is struggling with alcohol addiction and there's not an awful lot he can do about it. Whether he wants to get out of it or not is a different question. You know, like when you start Garrett's Garrett's, but you're like, it's like if they show something violent on screen. Like, you know, have you seen Daredevil? Yes, I have. I haven't seen the third season. I've first seen the first two seasons. Yeah, you know this scene in season one where... Kingpin crushes that guy's head in the door. Yes, I do distinctly remember that scene, yes. Yeah, and it's just like again and again and again, and it sits with that for as long as it takes, and then a bit longer, and you have to sit with that for an uncomfortably long amount of time, and you're just like, oh. And like, I know I'm kind of like switch, switch tracks there to like violence, but like, it's it's what the scene at the start of Garrett's Garrett's is doing. You know, but it, it it's making you realize that, like, this is the situation and this is something that Sam Vimes is actually struggling with. And this is kind of like, you know, I, and it's not that it it's not that it goes away. Like you said, he, he the fact that he relapses and that they have to like, like all the characters around him are reacting in you know, like a realistic way. They're like, God, I haven't seen him this bad in ages. And they're like, you know, something terrible must have happened that uh, caused him to relapse. And I think Carrot even says, I thought he had quit. Like, like there was this, there's this idea that they, they are very aware of his struggles and his recovery. And they're trying to like support him on that. I do like that you mentioned that he they talk about how he they are of the opinion that he's two drinks under right like he needs two drinks just to be where most people are 
that to me also speaks to perhaps one of the reasons for his alcoholism, this idea that it's not just about the trauma, although Vimes has plenty of that. It's also about the fact that he is really self-medicating his depression when he drinks. And that can, mm. that can lead to things like alcoholism. But it also, this is, because usually in noir, right, the detective is an alcoholic. Like if you watch any Humphrey Bogart film, He's playing an alcoholic, which Humphrey Bogart probably also was an alcoholic. But there's this idea that, oh, well, it's because they've seen too much and and they have to drink. And it's sort of presented as like a character development. But there's very little attention played to the actual alcoholism and the effect that that has on the character beyond like, oh, they're just hard bitten or whatever. And so... I like that, like you said, Terry Pratchett forces us to stick with what that would actually look like in a character like this and the struggle that he has with giving it up. But he clearly wants to. He clearly knows that it is not good for him. Because he talks about it, you know, with Sybil and this idea that he needs to give it up in order to be a better person, to have better relationships with people and yet the book does a really good job of not stigmatizing it it's not his personal choice right it is something that it's not called a disease which alcoholism is a disease or a disorder if you will but it is we are given an explanation that is not it is not Vimes's choice to be this way if that makes any sense as well, just with the, like, I thought he had quit and I haven't seen him this bad in so long. Like, it's kind of addressing the fact that, like, you know, when it gets, when alcoholism gets bad, it's not this secret thing that, like, a lot of things presented to you, like, oh, that no one will know. Like, it's ve- it becomes very obvious. Mm-hmm. It becomes very obvious and extremely damaging and apparent to everyone around the person who's suffering from alcohol addiction. Uh, but then also, like, it kind of deals with, you know, not wholly, because I think it would take up, narratively, it would take up a lot of time if they devoted, like, a big, kind of, like, not investigation, but, like, you know, like, a big kind of engagement with it. So they're kind of doing it throughout. But the fact that, like, these things happen in private, mm. you know, and that, and I suppose that's the whole thing of the Watch books, and because they're police books as well. They're police books which aren't, strangely aren't propaganda. I was going to ask you about what you thought about these books, because I remember you said that at the end of the Guards Guards episode, and so I'm curious what you think about this book in terms of, is this propaganda? is it not? It doesn't feel like propaganda, but at the same time, things can be propaganda without, like, feeling like them just because, like, by their very existence. Like, Brooklyn Nine-Nine... Brooklyn Nine-Nine is propaganda. Yes. Yeah, Brooklyn Nine-Nine presents the police as a system which they... Like, that they have good intentions and that, sure, there might be some bad cops, like the cop who racially profiles Terry, despite the fact that he's an officer in that episode in Season 4. And then, as officers of color... Halt and Terry have to have this conversation of whether you report the officer or not, or whether you try and make it to a higher rank and then try and implement institutional changes. 
but the way it presents the police is that, like, overall the police is a benign kind of institution that, you know, oh, sure, there's a few bad apples. And people trot that out with the police as well, the phrase a few bad apples. They do realize that the phrase is a few bad apples spoils the bunch. I know, they they never really think about the last part of that saying. (laughs) Whereas the watch, the watch starts off with the premise that it's wrong. And that everyone is kind of inherently shit. And there's no good people. You know, and especially because, I think as well, Ankh-Morpork is an interesting setting to have something, and which is why it doesn't feel like it's propaganda, because crime is all syndicated, and it's done under the auspices of a government to ensure that society is kept in running order, which is what the Patrician has done, and which is why... You know, like, things are, at, like, Ankh-Morpork is at peace, whereas under the kings, it didn't, you know, like, it, it it didn't work. And the watch, as it's going through, is, like, actively tackling things that are wrong with the policing system. But it started from a basis that the police, as a concept, as a, as a unit, as a collective, whatever, is wrong. And that what it's doing and the way it operates is wrong, and it needs to do better. And that's kind of brought in with this book, uh, which is, I don't know, it's it's strangely topical, the fact that, like, these are taken on as diversity hires, which a lot of companies or institutions will do, so they look better in rankings and have better public appearances. And that's what it starts off as in this. But then they, you know, have to actually try and confront some of their species biases because like racism isn't a thing on Discworld when you can be speciesist um as they've said in multiple footnotes but like especially with what's his name Cuddy yes yeah with Cuddy and with um Detritus I was wondering how you felt about Detritus becoming a watchman I yeah, I enjoyed that. That was a. I think it's an interesting. He is a main character of the Watch books from this point forward. Woo! Yeah, I like this direction better um, for him. Like, it's still tied in with his relationship with Ruby, but like, it's it's better. Like, he's in the Watch because Ruby says he needs to get a job to like provide for them, and I'm like, okay, cool. I can take that as a. Like, I'm just gradually becoming more and more like. <laughs> Nearly like 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 romance repulse, where I'm just like, no, keep it away from me. <laughs> that's like the opposite of me, but that's okay. I'll take care of the romance part, so you can take care of the other parts. <laughs> There's an interesting line because he's a thug and he's an enforcer and a bouncer, a splatter, as they say, and now he's gone into police work, you know. And so it's weird because he's a you know he's a rock troll, and but he's never like. He's never the one to use excessive force, which I think is Except an interesting Except for maybe choice. against himself. <laughs> yeah. Accidentally. Accidentally, uh, when he's like smacking himself in the head. Um, right. When he's it took them a saluting. while to teach him how to salute. Lance Constable Detritus, don't salute! Yeah, I love that as a running joke. But it's also, it's kind of impossible to be the one who uses excessive force when uh, Nobby is on the team. <laughs> oh, Dobby, we are going to talk about the diversity hires, but just to to take care of a couple of things before we move on, I 
agree with you about this not being propaganda, although I think it has an interesting relationship with propaganda because this the watch almost exists in dialogue with propaganda because, like you said, it exists on a fantasy world. So it's a little bit different in the ways that it can talk and think about policing. But the emphasis, I think, on doing it right, on we need a police force because there's a difference between killing and murder, which is a distinction that Vimes makes. Like this idea of, yeah, like crime, as we originally think about it, is organized. It is controlled in a way that works. But there are still these things that slip through the gaps and you need something like a police force in order to investigate it, to make sure that it doesn't explode in this way. But the way that the police force does this, it can't be racialized or specialized, I guess, in that sense, because they take on the role of keeping the peace during this war that's about to erupt between the dwarves and the trolls in Ankh-Morpork. And this book is very honest about the ways in which policing on Earth doesn't work because it isn't invested in anti-racism or anti-speciesism in this sense, because there are several times that the narrator will say the usual method of solving a crime for the police is to find whoever's closest of, the, of a different nationality. Yeah, we see this with, with Coalface. Right. And and Quirk, who is the leader of the Daywatch, is very much of this method of policing in which he's just like, oh, a troll did it. Obviously, if a dwarf was killed, then a troll did it. That's just what they do. And and it's connected with racism because the narrator actually very specifically says this is the kind of person that would pronounce the N word with two G's. And so like this person is racist and does subscribe to this method of policing. Carrot pushes back against that carrot and vimes and the night watch push back against that and carrot has this really interesting conception of policing where he says don't you know that the word policeman comes from the word polis like it's a man of the city and so carrot sees policing in its ideal sense as being a community effort as being something that is in touch with the community is listening to the community is incorporating the community in this way now, whether or not you see that as anti-police or just a completely different view of policing, that's a conversation that I think would be interesting to have. But it is specifically Bonus having episodes. this dialogue. Yeah, but it is specifically trying to engage in this dialogue in a way that something like Brooklyn Nine-Nine I don't think is. Yeah. Because Brooklyn Nine-Nine is too invested in the police as an institution, whereas this is like, no, we need to rethink the entire institution. I really like the moment at the end when Carrot goes to see the patrician and he says to him, you know, Carrot, we understand each other. I think we do. And, you know, have you ever looked up where the word politician comes from? Mm -hmm. You know? And so it's like Carrot and the watch uh, have to be, you know, for the people in the same way that like, like Venomary is the best ruler that Ankh-Morpork has had probably ever. Because he understands how it works. Do, does he like the job? No, but someone has to do it. And so he's running the city for the city's own sake. You know, and that that's what's always prioritized. He's not, you know, he's not the patrician for some, or at least at this stage, you know. You know, it could be revealed a backstory or something, but I, I really hope they don't give him a backstory. Like, he's not running it for his own gain. I think he'd much prefer to just, like, have a quiet life. 
but here he is, you know, and he's embroiled in every single plot to assassinate him. Right. In some way, shape, or or form. But, like, he's running it for his own sake. And, yeah, sure, he makes mistakes, like, discouraging Vimes too much. That Oh, my God. That was a mo- such a moment, you know, where he's, like, he realizes what's wrong and that Vimes hasn't hit the wall. And so that's how he knows he's gone too far. And that Vimes is just, like, he's broken Vimes. Yeah, it's interesting that Vetinari is usually so good at knowing how to push people's buttons, knowing how to engage with them in a way that works. And in fact, he usually can do this to Vimes, right? Like, he very specifically tells Vimes, don't investigate this, knowing that Vimes will, in fact, investigate it. In fact, even the way he says it gives Vimes a clue. Right? He says, like, don't don't investigate the theft at the the Assassin's Guild. This book is the first time that we really see that Vetinari is fallible. He does make mistakes. It's not very often, but he does push Vimes too far. And Vimes has a relapse because of it. And, you know, that's... He is horrified, right? Because he's talking to Leonard de Querm when he has this realization. So, yeah, I think that that's a really interesting way to talk about how Vetinari is, in fact, fallible. Even though he has, he he is very convincing as someone who isn't fallible because he has to convince people of that. But he does admit when he makes mistakes like this. Yeah, I don't know how I felt about him getting shot. I didn't like that. The patrician, the patrician is uh, is now a comfort character for me. Mm. So I'm like, no, why do you have to get shot? Do you know what really pissed me off? What in this book? They gave him a first name, Hadlock, and and the fact that Sybil calls him by that. <laughs> Yeah, and, like, Vimes is like, oh, it, you know, it seems weird that the patrician has a first name, let alone being called it. And, like, that's fine and all, but, like, I wish we were never told it. Do you know whose name I, I am interested in? Nobbies. What the hell? Nobby Nobs. Corporal Nobs. Corporal Nobs, because they run through all his initials, and there's, like, fucking, like, six or seven different letters in there. <laughs> and it's like, what is his name? What is Nobby's first name? The patrician, I think, shouldn't have a first name. In the same way that Cut Me On Throat Dibbler doesn't have a name. Like, Dibbler is just his name. And that's why I thought it was very weird that he had a nephew whose name was Saul Dibbler. Mm. Like, because I'm like, no, this is his name. You know, it's just, it's just Veterinary or the patrician. Oh no, don't call me, don't call me Veterinary. That was my father's name. You can call me the patrician. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it also kind of implies that maybe Sybil and him grew up together or ran in the same circles for her to be able to know and address him as such. Yeah. I mean, it's also like it's in the it's in the Pride and Prejudice territory of, you know, like having Mr. Darcy's first name be Fitzwilliam, kind of that like old old society names. Can I also um, say that it is really weird to me in both in Pride and Prejudice and in Jane Eyre where something really similar happens where his name is Edward Rochester, but you don't know his first name's Edward until like halfway through the book. When either of them are like, call me Fitzwilliam or call me Edward. I'm always like, no, that's not your name. Like your name is Rochester and Darcy. Is Mr. Darcy. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So uh, a couple of things to to wrap up our thing. There's a lot in this book. There's so much going on in this book. Uh, We do not have time to talk about all of it. I think it's interesting that when we discover that Vimes gives almost all of his money, his paycheck to the widows and orphans of the watch, 
but and that's why he lives so frugally is because he doesn't use most of his paycheck. And it's one of the conditions that Carrot brings to Vetinari at the end of the book that there needs to be a pension fund to yeah. take care of widows and orphans. But Vimes has been doing that on his own, which is another reason why I think he's perfect as someone to lead this more community-based watch, because he has a real sense of the community and that it's not just their job to enforce the law or enforce you know, the version of the law that is in the interest of the community. It's also their job to take care of the community. I said it about Rinswin before. Like, Rinswin is the archetypical good man in the sense that, like, if something good needs to be done, he'll do it, but he'll be reluctant about it. But also, like, Sam Vimes is not a good man, but he's trying to be, and that's what's important. You know, because, like, he's doing this out of his own pocket, and it's, you know, his position at the watch, which helps him take care of uh, orphans and children or widows um, of coppers. And, you know, like, and it comes back to how he's defined by the watch. Like when he relapses and they have to go get the clatchy and coffee, they're like, there's something grasped in his hand and they open it up and it's his watch badge that he's gripped so tight that it, it's cut his hand open. Because mm-hmm. Vatinari threatens to take it away. And he yeah, can't and he's like, not go. my badge. Yeah, I just, I think that's really interesting. And he never tells anyone about it. Like, none of them know until they find the record. Like, Vimes is also a person that doesn't need to, he doesn't need other people to know the good things that he does. I think that's part of his depression, though, because he just sees it as necessary. He doesn't see it as self-congratulatory. But also that moment when... Angua thinks that it's a list of, like, prostitutes. Mm, hmm She's like, oh, it mustn't have been very good if it was only $2. Uh, the way, like, you can tell this from, from like, the writing. Like, the room just fucking goes silent. Mm-hmm. And when Karen calls on Colon and he's like, you know, this person, you know, is she, you know, oh, yeah, she's the widow of whoever. And this person, oh, is she still going to this school? Yeah. And then when Angua's like, Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, and Carrot's like, no, just stop talking. Right. It's a very tense scene, yeah. The other thing we get is the first iteration of the Boots Theory. Mm. Were you excited to see the Boots Theory? I mean, I was kind of, like, waiting for it to come up, because I thought it was in Guards Guards, and when it wasn't in Guards Guards, I was like, mm, okay, so then I was just going to go into every watch book and be like, is the Boots one in this one? And I'm like, oh, it's in this one. So yeah, like, obviously, you know, obviously it's a commentary on, like, it's expensive to be poor. You know, like, that's what people don't get. Like, this whole thing with Lady Sybil is that she can live so frugally because she's so rich. Mm -hmm. You know, she can afford to have rooms that are just full of old furniture with the dust covers on, and she only lives in a a couple rooms in this massive house. Because she has the luxury of money. But it's also, like, the Boots thing is tied into, again, Vimes as a as a copper, you know? Mm-hmm. Where he's, like, his souls have become that worn that he can tell where he is in pork by the feel of the, the cobbles under his feet. And then, once he's, like, not in the watch, 
later on in the book, it's like, you know, by now he'd be walking onto this street doing his patrol. He'd be turning onto this, you know, the whole, the concept of like being a beat cop is tied to like this economic inequality, uh, which is a problem that like, you know, a lot of people are facing, especially because the, the gap between the, the rich and the poor in today's world, like the poverty line is, it's incredible how, how easy it is to, you know, go bankrupt and end up with nothing today. Whereas like Elon Musk is, you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are putting more into the fucking atmosphere from jetting off on brief trips to space than we ever will in our entire lifetimes. They might as well have set that money on fire Mm -hmm. for all the good that it did. Well, it's interesting. So I'm going to read the boots theory out loud because it is such an iconic and just like succinct, wonderful explanation of one of the reasons that there is so much economic inequality. The reason that the rich were so rich, Vimes reasoned, was because they managed to spend less money. Take Boots for an example. He earned $38 a month plus allowances. A really good pair of leather boots cost $50, but an affordable pair of boots, which were sort of okay for a season or two and then leaked like hell when the cardboard gave out, cost about $10. Those were the kind of boots Vimes always bought, and wore until the soles were so thin that he could tell where he was in Ankh-Morpork on a foggy night by the feel of the cobbles. But the thing was that good boots lasted for years and years. A man who could afford $50 had a pair of boots that still be keeping his feet dry in 10 years' time, while a poor man who could only afford cheap boots would have spent $100 on boots in the same time and would still have wet feet. Actually, that is such a famous description of economic inequality that activist Jack Monroe in the UK actually created something that they call the Vimes Boot Poverty Index. Have you seen this? I just sent you a link to it in the chat. Oh yeah, I saw it on I saw it on Twitter um when it was announced. Yeah. Yeah, and the the Pratchett estate has backed it, has said like, yes, this is the perfect use of this name. But the index basically tracks the disproportionate effect prices have on the lower paid, especially food prices. The idea that like yeah. inflation causes a disproportionate effect on people who are in poverty, who can't afford things that should be human rights like food. And so I thought that that was a brilliant use of this particular framework, I guess, of talking about economic inequality. But like, you're right, Vimes actually prefers the thin boots, even though he understands the problem with them, because it allows him to feel where he is, to literally feel the street. Mm. There's a line which struck me, like, Carrot talks about one of the few things that's in Vimes's room under mm-hmm. the bed is, like, a, th- a thing of cardboard that he found. That he, you know, like, because cardboard is hard to come by, so he grabbed that and he was like, oh, I can replace the soles of my boots with this. Like, you know, I can I can cut new soles from this. What I, I think this is so fascinating to me, because on the one hand, Vimes lives so frugally because he's giving so much of his paycheck away. But even after he meets Sybil, even after he learns that he is about to become one of the richest people in Ankh-Morpork, he still lives like a poor person. And if you've ever been in poverty or you have been around people who ha- like grew up in extreme poverty, those habits are almost impossible to shake off, even when they do have enough money to afford things, because 
there's always this fear around spending money like like what if i'm there again or what if i'm poor again or what mm. if you know something happens and i need like there's like a real fear like i i have been with people and i've known people who grew up in this sort of poverty and have been like really just like has so much anxiety about spending money on things for themselves because they don't they're just not used to it there's a lot of trauma around it and so i appreciated that as well let's talk about carrot who is really the other big player in this book and who gets a lot of development. What did you think about Carrot's storyline and the ways in which his character has grown between Guards, Guards and Men-at-Arms and then over the course of Men-at-Arms? I enjoyed it. Like, I enjoyed Carrot as a character in Guards, Guards, but in Guards, Guards, he was specifically, like, the naive, you know, like, got the gleam in his eye kind of provincial person who ends up in the big city doing you know doing some copping so it's like that and so then it, it, this has progressed into like colon who's been there for you know as long as he can remember basically calls carrot sir it you know stuff like that and it, it, there's all these moments where they're like oh he's a natural heir of command and stuff and obviously this is because like the divine right of kings yeah he has the charisma where... that just sort of bends the world around him like that kind of stuff, but he's he's aware of it. I like what you said at the beginning of the episode about like how simple doesn't mean stupid. There, this is the first book where we get an inkling of the fact that this persona that Carrot has might actually be constructed. It might be mm. something that he's doing, not not like as a manipulation of people around him, but almost like a safeguard against his own power. Like this is something. Although he does, he does manipulate vibes at the end. Oh, he does. He will manipulate people. I think if it, if he thinks it's the right thing to do, but you'll notice that the way he performs his simplicity or the ways in which he performs guilelessness a lot of times prevents him from overpowering the people around him with his yeah. charisma. And this is really the first book that we get a sense that maybe that's purposeful in some way. Mm. I mean, it's hard to tell. Yeah. Like, I think Pratchett does a really good job of keeping you guessing about this character. Like, how much of this is an act or a persona or how much of it is really this character being this naive or being this simple in this way. Although he is much less simple than he was in guards guards. Like he even kind of laughs about having arrested the head of the thieves guild in the first book. Right. He's like, Oh, like I was so unaware of how things worked that I did this. And isn't that silly? What really struck me at the end was that he reads the file that Dr. Crucius shows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that Edward Deeth finds. And he obvi quite obviously sees that he has he has the uh he has the blood of kings. And it's interesting to see what he would what he's gonna do next. Because like when he's when he's asked about that but like directly by both Vimes and Venonari, like that he 
he denies it. And he's like, oh, I don't know. I must have put it down somewhere. Or, I, you know, I, I don't know anything about that. So it's interesting to see what's going forward. Because I really hope, I really hope that it, they don't go instituting a king in Ankh-Morpork. Because, like, I think Ankh-Morpork is allergic to royalty. To put it to a fine point. And also that would mean that the veterinary wouldn't be the patrician anymore. And I'd be very upset about that. Because <laughs> it, it, it gets into that. The whole thing where, where like Edward Deeth and the noblemen believe that like a king is going to come on. And he's going to be good. And when the king shows up everything will be made right. And then Vimes is like there's no, there's no such thing as good people. He's not a good man. But Carrot is a good man. Which is arguably worse the way he bends people around him and it it weirdly echoed that line from near the start of weird sisters where the baby shows up and they're talking about like a crown being a disease that poisons the mind and they have a a similar line here remember tom john from weird sisters also has this ability to bend people around him because when he performs yeah everyone stops there everybody is sort of tavern brawl So there is a lot of like parallels here. There's two things that you said that I think are really interesting. The first one is this whole like good man versus evil man situation, because that echoes the thing in Witches Abroad where Granny Weatherwax says, if you're a good person, you just you kill people without any question because you're enforcing justice. But if you're an evil person, you have to gloat about it, right? Mm -hmm. You have to monologue and so on because you're like, you want it to be justified and you want people to understand you. We get a, a, an echo of that here with Vimes saying that like an evil man will continue talking, but a good man will just kill you. And then Carrot just kills Crucis, right? He just kills him immediately upon finding the evidence, right, of of this because Carrot is a good man. So I thought that was really interesting, the way that we enforce that Carrot is a good person, which means he is decisive in this way, right? He sees everything in black and white, like you've said. Yeah. So there's not room for monologuing. There's not room for mercy in that way. Yeah, there's no room for mercy, but like like, like with death, death is neither good nor bad. He just is. It, it, it's interesting because there's these characters, I mean... It, a lot of them are people who are assured of who they are as a person or in their job or who enjoy the work they do, who are kind of, you know, like a sword, basically, that splits things onto one side or the other. And death is one of them because there's no justice. There's no law. There's just him. Whereas, like, Carrot is also, like, you know, he's the most... I think he's the most good a person can be, like, from an absolute moral standpoint. He's very lawful good. Yeah, he's lawful good, whereas I think Vimes is chaotic good. Nobs is chaotic evil. Yes, that is very true. The other thing that you said that I thought was interesting in this book, and I thought about it a lot as I was reading it, is that between guards, guards, and men-at-arms, and then during men-at-arms, Kara and Vimes have clearly had an impact on each other. These are two characters that have grown together and have challenged each other to become better versions of themselves because Carrot makes Vimes care about solving these cases, about recreating the watch in this way where things could be better because Vimes 
at the beginning of Guards Guards, remember, doesn't think anything can be done. He's slowly drinking himself to death because he can't handle the way that things are. Carrot is the one who comes in and says, like, no, things can be better. But Vimes has had an effect on Carrot, too. Not only has Vimes taught him everything that he knows about policing, which Carrot says several times during the book. At the end of the book, when Carrot is talking to Vetinari about kings, he basically repeats what Vimes said about kings to Vetinari. Because Vetinari says, Perhaps the city does need a king, though. Have you considered that? Like a fish needs a, er, thing that doesn't work underwater, sir. Yet a king can appeal to the emotion of his subjects, Captain, in very much the same way as you did recently, I understand. Yes, sir. But what will he do the next day? You can't treat people like puppet dolls. No, sir. Mr. Vimes always said a man has got to know his limitations. If there was a king, then the best thing he could do would be to get on with a decent day's work. Yeah. He specifically has learned from Vimes the way that corruption works and the way that power can cause these sorts of problems, especially when it's concentrated in something like a monarchy. I thought that was quite like, I'm going to use the word precious because it's like with Vimes as he is, he's kind of like, he needs Karish, you know, like, or else, because you run the risk then of, of, of Vimes becoming too much of a hard bitten detective, you know? Like, he needs someone, he needs a younger protege. And, like, both Nobbs and Colin have been at the watch for, like, too long for it to be them. And can you teach Nobby anything, really? <laughs> no. You can only really control Nobby, not teach him new things. <laughs> I don't even think you can control Nobby. What you need to do, like, Nobby is a force of nature, and you just kind of need to hope. <laughs> that the storm goes the way you want it to and doesn't blow your house up. Yeah, like, I really like that. And it's it's interesting as well because, like, it takes so long for Carrot to, con- to, like, talk to his father back in the mines, or his adopted father, that, like, Vimes basically is a surrogate father for him. Yes. Which is interesting because, like, Carrot's father at the mines isn't his real father either. So, like, mm-hmm. his whole character is defined by, like... And because, as well, his whole thing is that he's the rightful king of Ankh-Morpork, but he doesn't... Up until now, he doesn't know it because he's estranged from his lineage. So he's, like, estranged from, pater- like, a true paternal figure and so has to find that in people who genuinely care about him. Because, like, people care about a king because they hope they'll get something out of it, or they hope it'll spare their own neck. But, like, you know, Carrot's dad cares about him just because, you know, he loves him, and you know, like, like Vimes thinks that right. he, he's a good person, and thinks that he can help the people of the city, that he has their interests at heart and not something personal. So, like, it's a, it's a genuine connection. Yeah, and you get the sense that they deeply care about each other because Carrot very much could have led the watch at the end of this book. He could have taken over and been in charge. He clearly has leadership potential, but I think he doesn't. One, because he doesn't feel like he feels like he has too much power. I think Carrot carefully positions himself in a position of subordinate for a reason. 
because he needs someone like Vimes to limit his the ability of him to sway people in this way. But I also think he genuinely cares about Vimes. I think he understands that Vimes needs the watch as that essential part of his identity. Yeah, like because he he has to, he goes and specifically finds this you know, this old antiquated position that hasn't been there since like the last king was deposed. Who was also that's very weird. What I don't know what they're doing. Like the fact that the last person who held the commander of the watch position was a Vimes and they keep they keep making reference to this and like Vimes is very like like shut down the conversation when they brought it up before. You have to le- read between the lines here. The person who killed the last king was a Vimes. Was the commander of the watch. No, yeah, but like now I'm reading between the lines and I, I like now it, but the way they played it Makes me think that it's the same Vimes, which, like, I don't know how they're going to do that. But then also, because, like, you brought up the, the, the Chrono monks or whatever they're called at the end of Small Gods. The the monks of history? Yeah, the history monks. Right. So, like, in theory, time travel does exist. So, Vimes could... But, like, now I feel like Charlie Day. But... That's beside the point. That's for me to, like, think about. I'm not going to Google it. Don't Google it. I will say it's not as complicated as you think, but you're not wrong with some of the connections that you're making, but not in the way that you think. The way they did it, like, drew a bit too much attention to it for me that, like, I my mind couldn't just let it be that it was, like, you know... Although it does bring a really interesting parallel that, like, if the last Vimes who held this position killed the king, then what is the... Like, it's a parallel between the relationship of this Vimes and Carrot. Mm. So, like, they have, like, a different relationship. They're trying to recreate and yet solve the problem of the past, right, between the two of them. But it's also hopefully that... Hopefully he'll go the same route as Tom John and uh, refuse his, his... claim to the throne although he he does leverage it to get more out of veterinary i don't know if you noticed that because he's just like well like i you know maybe if the city needed a king the king would come back and then he asks for all of these things from veterinary right like reopening the watch houses and expanding the watch and getting the pensions and they need another kettle and a new dartboard because the librarian keeps wrecking the one that they gave him at the last, at the end of I'd the guards' love guards. If at the end of every watch book, they just go to veterinary and keep asking for dartboards, <laughs> and that this is just a running gag. It's happened twice now. So hopefully, yeah. hopefully, I'm surprised Theater of Cruelty didn't end with a dartboard. Well, veterinary's not even in Theater of Cruelty. It's interesting as well, just when you talk about like that. The now we're at the stage of Discworld where like characters from other series will just show up, whereas the earlier ones felt very self-contained. Mm-hmm. You know, like Ridcully shows up at at Vimes's wedding, and the librarian, like they cut to the librarian when um Cuddy and Detritus are um tunneling up from 
This book also addresses my favorite fact in the Discworld. The fact that uh, Ankhmore Pork is not built on stone, it's built on loam. It's built on loam, which comes up several times. Yeah. Uh. And not just comes up, like it's an important plot point as they're like going through the tunnels. Finally, vindication. Vindication for the Ankhmore Pork Loam Foundation truthers. That's going to be a shirt. Yeah. The Wendell Poons fan club and the Ankhmore Pork Loam Foundation truthers. Yeah, but the librarian, they come up through the library. The librarian brains Cuddy over the head with a book because he thinks they're like attacking the library. But then when he realizes they're part of the watch, he takes them to the watch house, which Carrot at this point has learned how to speak librarian, how to speak orangutan. So he mm. understands what the librarian is saying. And the librarian actually helps them too. A little bit, because he goes down into the tunnels again to find the corpse of Bino with them. So yeah, it's it's a fun little cameo there. But yeah, Rid Coley is actually, I think he actually performs the marriage between Vimes and Sybil, even though it happens off, you know, not in, like, it's not described in the book, but he's like the one who's officiating the wedding, because it's in the Unseen University Great Hall. And the librarian plays the uh, the organ with all the different sound effects oh that was good speaking of of characters that show up so we get another moving pictures character who officially joins these watch books and will be an important part of the watch books going forward gaspode i was kind of a bit annoyed that they were just like that they just brought him back and they were like oh yeah he can talk again just because he was at the high uh magic building Although I do appreciate that he said one minute I'm just a dog and the next minute I'm like, here we go again. Like they do reference that like he had been this way before. Yes. A constructed timeline then. Right. This takes place after this has to take place after moving pictures. Right. And it has to take place after it's it's moving pictures, isn't it? I think it is moving pictures the first time. Hold on. I actually wrote this down. Yeah. Which one is his first appearance? It, it's his first appearance, but we did it second. So he, like, when we did Reaper Man. You're right. Moving Pictures was first, so that would be his first appearance. That's right. Although we first read about him in Reaper Man. Yeah. So those ones, so we have, like, a definite point on, on our timeline that we're constructing. Right. And it's Moving Pictures. Right. Which we would have known, too, because Detritus is with Ruby. So that means that then the, these books have to come after Color of Magic, Light Fantastic, and Weird Sisters, because they make reference to the broken and mended drum. Right, and sorcery, because Red Coley isn't Arch-Chancellor yet in sorcery. Yeah. Because that's Wazy Goose. It is Wazy Goose. Good old crazy Wazy Goose. <laughs> yeah, so obviously Gaspode, his role in this book is very much tied to Angua's role. So let's talk a little bit about these diversity hires. So at the beginning of this book, Vetinari basically says you have to hire more species. I've been getting a lot of complaints from the community about the speciesism of the watch, which is, again, it plays into this idea that they're making the watch better and more inclusive in this way. So we get... Cuddy, who is a dwarf, and Detritus, the troll, and then Angua, who I loved the way that this book 
implies for about the first third of the book or first quarter of the book, really, that it's because she's a woman. But then we find out it's actually because she's a werewolf. And I like that they they keep like dancing around it. And Carrot doesn't actually figure it out until like the end of the book. But everyone else keeps saying, well, you know why she was hired. And Carrot's like, yeah, because she's a woman. It's like, actually, no, that's not why she was hired. Not at all. I liked all of them. And I didn't think I was going to like all of them. I was like, if they're going to introduce more characters, you know, because it ends up that they keep adding people to the watch and, add, you know, adding more and more people, you know. And so I was like, oh, okay, this is going to grow and grow. And so I can't possibly like all the supporting characters that they bring in. But, like, I mean, Detritus is great. We've met him before. So, like, I, you know, I thought Detritus was pretty cool beforehand, except for when he was a lovesick loony in Moving Pictures. What did you think about the revelation that trolls' brains are controlled by temperature? And so when he's in the meat locker in the Port Futures warehouse he becomes like incredibly smart because his brain like needs a cooler temperature to function in that way i mean like it makes sense but it's something i never really considered i thought it was very cool but also like you know he's he's wrote out this great equation and then that's when they rescue him and they're like what's the equal and he's like what does equals mean yeah i thought that was really cool I think it's very funny as well. Oh, no, the, the Ankh Morpork has a, a pork futures warehouse. Yeah, we talked a lot about how that's really a thing. Like the, the wine, like the future wine where you get the hangover the day before. And I do like that his his intelligence varies because like there is a point later in the book, too, where they're like, he's like, oh, it's slightly cooler down here. So I can I, I'm a little smarter. I, I can like follow these things a little bit better. And then Cuddy makes him the helmet. Yeah, the helmet that cools him down. Yeah. So Cuddy and Detritus introduce us. We've, I think there have been some slight references to it before, but this is where we really start to explore the species hatred between trolls and dwarves and how they keep citing this particular historical event, Coombe Valley, as this battle in which both sides are accused of ambushing each other there's a lot of like ancestral distrust of each other because of this historical event. This is going to be a on-running thread, especially in the watch books. The ways in which these two species dislike each other, hate each other in this way. But we get, because Detritus and Cuddy are forced into such proximity of each other and they have to develop this relationship. I loved their friendship. It's so good because like they're starting to get like you know, nice, or friends with one another when they're in the Pork Futures warehouse. And then when Dr. Crucis takes fire, or, like, you know, fires at them with the Ghana, like, Detritus takes the bullets for him. And then when Cuddy sees this, he's like, like, you know, like, what did you do that for? And it's like, well, because you would have died. I Like, I'm made out of rock, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, like, he's done a selfless act. And so that, like, when he storms the the guild of butchers <laughs> which i thought was very funny where he's like basically beating the shit out of everyone and they're like give it to me and they're like what you never said what you wanted oh didn't i um <laughs> i like how we get dibbler too in this in this moment because he falls into when he throws him out of the window he falls into dibbler's cart yeah 
with the rats with the ketchup because that's what dwarf uh, dwarves love rats with the ketchup specifically. Mm. But yeah, like they developed this relationship. How did you feel about Cuddy's death at the end of the book? I was so sad. I was nearly crying about it. But then also detritus, like detritus, having to like sit, and he's just like he's thinking, and they're like easy, like they're wary of him. Like what? What is he going to do when Cuddy, like you know, the Cuddy has been killed? And it's an interesting point because then this happens later on, or like a couple pages later on with Carrot and Angua, you know, where Vi- you know Vimes asks him, "Don't you want revenge for Angua?" And it's like, "Personal is not the same as important." Oh my god, that line! What a line! Yeah, and like Vimes has to be like, you know, like what kind of like idiot is so naive as to believe this? And he's like, "Well, actually, yeah." And I suppose, like, I couldn't remember the actual Mountain Goat sign that I was thinking of when I read it. Because I was like, oh, this is, like, a fairly, like, close reference to an actual lyric. But it made me think of the song Sicilian Crest, and especially with, like, Carrot. How easy he is to follow. Like, the song Sicilian Crest is about how easy it is to follow fascism. But, like, especially, like, in the kind of Trump era... You can apply it to, like, a lot of ideologies. In this case, like, a monarchy. Right. Out of the, like, out of the blue, everything's new. And, like, the whole thing is about waiting for this person to come. And I suppose, like, you know, that's the king. All the noblemen are waiting for the king to come and, you know, get rid of the guilds and restore their powers and stuff. You know, we wait, like, stockpiled landmines ready to burst. And then... Look to the West, look to the man bearing the Sicilian crest, and say, like, you know, if you've got a flag to follow, the, the people are going to do that. Yeah. Or like that line in, in Garrett's Garrett's that there are people who follow any flag, follow any dragon, just because they, they don't say no. Right, and I think Carrot is very wary of using that power in that way, which is why he provides, like, some checks and balances against his own power. But I think Carrot's also really inspired by Cuddy and Detritus's friendship because there there was a way when you start reading this book to read the beginning of it as like, oh, this is a satire about affirmative action. Gross. Like, you know, affirmative action exists because of the way that certain minority groups have experienced systemic oppression and have unequal opportunities in society. But this book actually does a really good job of explaining why it's important to have diverse groups of people in any kind of community-based policing group. Because Carrot, inspired by Cuddy and Detritus's friendship, basically is like, okay, well, in order to prevent this riot, this species riot from happening, I'm just going to start swearing in dwarves and trolls. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm just going to start te- like making them part of the keeping the peace effort instead of allowing them to just fight each other. I am actually going to give them a sense of investment in keeping this city peaceful, which I thought was a brilliant move on his part. Yeah. Well, cause as well, like that's the whole thing about the police is the police needs to be representative of the people that it, it claims to protect. And it's most clearly in that moment where they're swearing in dwarves and trolls and they're like, 
Well, he's already sworn in these many people, and I don't feel safe with that many people. Okay, well, we'll swear in an equal amount of dwarves. Once a person gets sworn in on one side, they have to do the other, because they need to, like, keep that representative balance. Mm -hmm. And especially because it's such a powder keg situation. And so they have to be, like, as careful as possible to diffuse tension. But also, like, yeah, the watch under Quirk is everything that's wrong with the police in modern times. And I suppose probably the similar thing. I don't think the police has changed much. But, like, they need to show that they're different and that they actually care. Right. But also, can we just talk about for a second, why is his first name Mayonnaise? <laughs> no, it's a nickname. They call him Mayonnaise Quirk. That's what Colin says. And Angua is like, he, she's like, oh, let me guess. It's because he's rich and oily and like kind of gross. Yeah. What did you think of Angua? Our werewolf. I liked Angua. Recruit. I do too. She's one of my favorite characters. So I'm glad you like her. I didn't want her to die. And so I'm glad she came back at the end. Did you think she was dead? Yeah, and I was like, it felt a bit cheap to kill her off like that, especially just after Cuddy had died. Mm -hmm. But then also, I'm like, it felt a bit cheap to bring her back. So I was I was uncertain, but I like the character and I'm glad she's still alive. And look, I'm going to be honest with you, I kind of gave a shit about their relationship. Really? Tell me why. Strangely, I don't know. And I think it's mainly because Carrot doesn't have a clue about what's going on <laughs> half the time. I don't know. Like, it's handled, like, it's the most realistic depiction of a relationship in Discworld. Or in, like, a lot of fantasy settings, but it's also, like, they just seem to care. Which I think is the key thing. I don't know. I don't know why. I just was like, yeah, like, I can tolerate this. The one other, like, relationship in fiction that I kind of tolerate recently is I, I have I mentioned this before Chidi and Eleanor from The Good Place I don't think you have but I mean how can you not care about that relationship it's amazing yeah but see like because I can care about characters but then I'm just like oh, just stop interacting romantically yeah uh I feel like it takes away from a plot a lot of the time especially when they're like we have to stop the action of the plot to then do this romance but also, I really like the line where, like, it's implied that they have sex, where it's like, his world moved, and they didn't bother to let the bread or newspaper people know, which I thought was so funny. <laughs> yeah, I I love their relationship. I think it's really complicated because of the charisma, and the fact that she knows that he has this power, and she's afraid of it at first, remember, because she runs away, and Gasboat is just kind of like, look... If he finds you, you're going to fall under the spell. But if you go back, it's your choice, right? It's your choice to be with yeah. him. And I, I thought that was really interesting. But also the fact that, like, he is, at the beginning of this book, he is kind of speciesist against the undead, right? Like, he makes a remark to her that is very, like, he's like, oh, I'm just creeped out and I wish they'd go back where they came from, right? Because she's staying with Mrs. Cake and Red Shoe and, you know, who helps her move. Yeah. You know, and it kind of reminded me of the ways in which, like, obviously you shouldn't say that about anyone, but you also should be really aware that when you say things like that, you don't necessarily know who you're talking to. This is, it reminds me of, like, yeah. invisible disabilities, right? Like, saying, like, 
you know, something like, oh, well, I, you know, all people with diabetes are like leeching off of the government or whatever. You have no idea who you're talking to when you say that. Like you could be talking to someone who's diabetic. I mean, it's a hateful thing to say to begin with, but it, that's just kind of what it reminded me of. But the fact that he like works through that and realizes, oh, well, that's a really, really dumb way of looking at the world. Like I shouldn't think like that. I, I thought that was really powerful. Yeah, and it's also, like, that's probably from Vimes as well, mm -hmm. in part. Like, one of the things that Vimes hates the most is vampires and the undead. Yeah, like, it's, you know, because when you have this, like, relationship where two people are influenced by one another and they, like, grow together, like, it's not always positive. Yeah, that's true. That is absolutely true. I'm thinking of kind of like the Stephen King short story, At Pupil, which I didn't like, but, like, that, like, that's the most, like, the most... The furthest example in the opposite direction of um, two people stuck in a relationship that isn't romantic, uh, but um, they, they, they both, like, they're made actively worse by it. And I like that Angua is a very good watch person. Like, she uses her werewolf abilities and Gasbode, right, who helps her, to solve the case, to get clues. And she's very afraid of telling Carrot at first how she got those clues. But that's going to it's going to be really important in later books that she is able to use her sense of smell and her werewolf form in order to do this. Although I also appreciate this. The Pratchett books are one of the best, even though they don't completely describe how she like what she looks like as she's becoming a werewolf or wh what she looks like when she changes back. I like that it, of all the werewolf books I've read, is very invested in this idea of whatever it looks like, it doesn't look pleasant. Like, wolves and people are not the same shape. <laughs> like, it's not something that's going to be pretty. No, like, it scares the thief, whose name I've, I've momentarily forgotten, the one who steals her clothes. Like, it yeah. scares him basically, like, half to death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even Gasboat is, like, unnerved by it when he sees it. Yeah. What did you think about the big Fido and the dog's guild thread of this? I mean, I could have done without it. It's interesting, like, in terms of identity, because the dogs, every dog, like they say, every dog carries in it the, the concept of bad dog. Every dog is a bad dog. And how dogs are a separate species from wolf. They're not the same species. Yeah. Well, because, yeah, wolves have no name. Right. But dogs have a name because they're given one by humans. But I like the parallel between like werewolves, dogs and werewolves are kind of similar because dogs are almost half human in the way that werewolves exist in this like dual identity. Dogs also exist in a dual identity because their bodies tell them one thing, but the way that they've been trained by humans has given them another thing. Told them another. Yeah. Yeah. And like... The like all of these dogs are ones that have kind of like it's kind of implied that they're um you know they were treated poorly by their humans or except for Fido um it's also like I mean it's very funny like they did it in Up as well you know the he's um he's a small dog yeah he's a little poodle yeah it's uh Gaspard says it I uh. Do, 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 do. Yeah, good grief, said Angua, when they had put several streets between them and the crowd of dogs. He's mad, isn't he? No. Mad's when you froth at the mouth, said Gaspode. He's insane. That's when you froth at the brain. Yeah. 
they also make the the point that big fido kills other dogs which is not a natural thing that dogs do this is something that white fang brings up as well dogs when they fight they don't kill each other it's a fight for dominance so there's something really wrong if a dog kills another dog in this way i mean it might accidentally kill another dog but they don't usually fight to the death unless there's a human involved yeah because as well like the way they present like how fido came to dominance he bested his opponent and then when the opponent was beaten then killed it yeah the like that's it, it's kind of like presented as this is go this goes against uh like nature yeah well and then angua is like this is not what wolves are the stuff that he's describing wolves like i know wolves i've run with wolves wolves don't have names they don't get they don't have someone who gives them orders you know a pack functions in a way that's very different than a way the way that like a group of dogs would function yeah uh also like gasbodes the power because he can speak in a human voice, he can tell them to sit and they'll listen. Because yeah, yeah, I thought that was really funny. Well, because he kept the way he kept bringing it up made it seem like he was just like chancing his arm. Yeah, you know, like he was kind of like a Del Boy Trotter esque figure. He's like, you know, like oh, trust me, I've got the power. But like he does, he's got the power. He's got the power. Yeah, because dogs deep down know that they're a bad dog. So just a few characters that get mentioned. We've heard of Leonard DeQuorm before. He's been mentioned, but this is the first time we actually get to meet Leonard DeQuorm. He is the inventor of the Ghana, although he regrets it quite a bit. What did you think of Leonard DeQuorm and the way that he is imprisoned, sort of, by Vetinari? Granted, I thought it was slightly out of character that um, Vetinari has him imprisoned. But it's also like he's very well cared for, so it's nearly it just it nearly feels like like an in-house patronage. Yeah. Like during the Renaissance, he just happened. But like the way veterinary works is that nothing is out in the open, so that's why it's like in between. Well, I think he also knows that Leonard Decorum is capable of making inventions like the Ghana, and that he doesn't yeah. always know when to not invent something. And so it's like he is keeping him very well so he won't, so nobody else will get their hands on him, basically. Yeah. I mean, quite obviously, he's Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, yeah, completely. Uh, analog. But it, it feels very much like, like J. Robert Oppenheimer in the sense that, like, he's created the Ghana and he regrets it. You know, like the I have become death destroyer of worlds mm-hmm. speech um, that Oppenheimer gave after they detonated the nuclear bomb. But it's also in, it, it, it's interesting as well, because Veterinary is keeping him there, but he gave the gun to the Assassin's Guild because he wanted it destroyed. Veterinary doesn't want this power out. And so then he gets like. He gets enraged when he realizes the Crucis ha- you know, like, didn't have it destroyed, which I thought w- w- was a good moment. It was a good character moment. It's one of, like, you know, it's a very small moment if you're uncertain about who he is as a character. Like, let's say you pick up Men at Arms as, as your first Discworld book. That, like, you know, that, that, that fairly quickly sells you on who he is. Yes. Because um, it's just before. It's just before we get the re- where we get him realizing he's pushed Vimes too far. 
Yeah, I think that there's a lot of really good interactions between Vetinari and other characters in this. We also, these are much more minor characters, but Vetinari has a new assistant, Drumknot, who I can assure you is much less evil than the old assistant. He is a fixture with Vetinari, so look out for Drumknot in future, future books. We also get references to Bloody Stupid Johnson, who also becomes a fixture in the books. I don't think he ever actually appears in any books because he lived long before any of these books really took place. But the idea of... Unless they go back in time. Unless they go back in time. But he is an inventor that has like no sense of size or like usefulness. And so he makes these inventions that are just like... There's always something slightly wrong with them. So like the fish pond that's like 100 yards long, but only one inch wide. The statue, the Colossus of Ankh-Morpork. Yeah, the Colossus of Ankh-Morpork that is kept in like a pocket because it's actually really small. The organ. It's so funny, the reveal at the end. Yeah, they were like, what's the deal with this organ? Oh, I don't know, but like it's got the letters BSJ on it. I'm like, oh my God, it's. Bloody Stupid Johnson is so funny. <laughs> Bloody Stupid Johnson. It is a joke that will continue, so keep keep your eye out on it that. It reminds me of Roddy Doyle. The Irish author Roddy Doyle wrote these books for children called the Rover Adventures, which Rover kind of has a similar energy to Gaspode, mm. actually. But in it, the character's name is Mr. Mac. Like, his first name is Mr. Ah. Uh, because the, the census person came round... And was like, oh, you've got a new baby, what's his name? And they hadn't decided on a name, and they were like, he was like, Mr. Mr. And so that, like, his name is Mr. Mr. Mac. And then his neighbor is called Mr. Egit. Um, <laughs> which is, you know what an Egit is? Yes, I am aware. I have also seen Bugs Bunny. <laughs> he, he came up on the father of Mr. Egit, and he asked the same question, but he surprised him while he was doing handiwork, so he accidentally hit his thumb with the hammer and went, Egypt! And so now his child is named Egypt. So I think it'd be very funny if his name is, like, he's called Bloody Stupid Johnson. <laughs> that's just his name. That's just his name. Yeah, I, I yeah. think that Bloody Stupid Johnson is a very funny joke, and I will laugh at it every single time it comes up. We also get to see a couple of places that have been mentioned in other books but this is the first time we actually get to see them in a book we get to see the bucket which is the copper bar mm. which is different from the mended drum so usually we see things like the mended drum but the bucket is specifically a place where the watch come to drink that's going to be important in future books we also get to see harga's house of ribs which is vime's favorite eating establishment yeah sham harga's house of ribs the person behind the f world's first subliminal message in the Discord. <laughs> Did you like the thing about the coffee? I thought that was hilarious. The What thing about the coffee? The coffee that is as black as a moonless night. Well, what kind of clouds on this night? <laughs> what what yeah. the, what what's the moon situation? Like what's the light situation? Yeah. I thought that was funny, but what I thought was funnier was the fact that like they say, oh, he's perpetually cleaning glasses, but no one ever knows what happens to the clean ones. And because, like, that's a very specific thing in fiction, where, like, the bartender is always cleaning a glass. Or even on television. You're always seeing, like, a bartender with, like, a rag and a glass. Yeah, and, like, this is the, you know, like, the, then there's a footnote later on when Cuddy and, and Detritus are in the caves where it's, like, they can see normally, 
but the caves are lit also by you know it, you know it's so lucky that the this um bioluminescent moss mm-hmm. grows in case any like human protagonist needs to navigate it no one knows why it just always happens yeah exactly we also get mr silverfish briefly at the alchemist guild so that's another moving pictures character yeah i'm glad mr silverfish is um you know gotten his feet back under him again <laughs> yeah he's now very invested in exploding billiard balls actually i think they're just trying to make ivory right but they keep exploding the billiard balls mm. we also get a long-running joke that i really don't think i caught the first time but it's been in like the last three books that we've talked about where they're in the underground cave and so- detritus is making the shadows on the wall Due deformed rabbit, it's my favorite, but it's the librarian, so it comes out as ook. Yeah. Due deformed rabbit, it's my favorite. I had no idea that was a running joke until we read these three books, so that was pretty funny. No, it's just it's funny because like everyone thinks they can do shadow animals and they can't, so it just it does end up just looking like a deformed rabbit. It's true. It's true. And then finally, this is not a reference to something else, but it is something this is the first instance that I could find where the euphemism for prostitution in Ankh-Morpork is the Seamstress Guild. Oh yeah, that's a historical thing, right? Yeah, that's a historical thing. Like, oh yeah, they're seamstresses. Uh, but Angua actually says that specifically. Like, it was either join the watch or become a seamstress. And they have the footnote about how, like, there's like 900 women who gave their occupation as seamstress, but there was only two needles found between all of them. So yeah, yeah, that's that's historically a way that people euphemized at that institution, but that's going to become a, a long-running joke in the disc world as well. Mm. Is there anything else you want to say before I move into the wrap-up? Dr. Whiteface. Oh yes, I for- forgot about the Fool's Guild. Dr. Whiteface is fucking terrifying. But yes. also, there's a specific line that, like, we've talked about the good lines, like, Personal isn't the same as important, you know, like insane is when you froth in the brain, which, you know, like links back to the death of the mind that happened in The Life Fantastic. Mm-hmm. But like this one, like Dr. Whiteface, there's something that even clowns are afraid of. Just like, oh, even even clowns are afraid. And the fact that he's just like a plain white and black face. Like, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, he's terrifying. He is absolutely terrifying. Please tell me we get to see more of Dr. Whiteface. But, like, in passing. I think so. I think probably. But I can't specifically think of an instance off the top of my head. But I do know that there's a lot more to do with, like, the heads of the various guilds. So I imagine we see him in passing. The guilds are kind of coming up in a big way. Like, the the dogs have a guild. And now, like, obviously there's the guild of seamstresses. But, you know, like, everyone seems to be getting a guild. There's the Guild of Butchers, which was introduced in this one. I think everyone should unionize. The Guild unionize. of Beggars. The Guild of, Be- the guild of Beggars is is an interesting thing, because there that's a thing in a lot of, like, fantasy fiction, the Court of Beggars. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, where it's always the king or queen of beggars. And I suppose yes. we didn't bring it up earlier, but the fact that, like, this is the moral line that's drawn, where the serving... The servant is is accidentally killed, where she's just an innocent bystander, you know, comes through this. We're like, you know, there here are these people who have literally nothing, you know, because they're beggars. 
And that's what they spend their whole life doing. And so like, it's, you know, it's wrong place, wrong time coupled with like this concept of like the hierarchy of victims and who doesn't, doesn't deserve to die. But like, it's interesting that the Mara line is drawn there and that's where Dr. Crucis is like, what the fuck? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause she was innocent. Yeah, killing the heads of the guilds, that's fine. Uh, and that's what Edward Deeth set out to do. But, like, killing this person who is in the guild, and, uh, you know, but isn't the head of it. It upsets Angua, too. But I think Angua is doing it from an empathy perspective, whereas, mm-hmm. like, Dr. Crucis is kind of, like, freaking out because, like, this is not what we had planned. And right. We set out to kill, like, a select few people. And because we think they deserve it. But then this person died and didn't deserve it. Uh, whereas Ang was like, this is like, all of this is just a senseless waste of life. Right. All right. So there are three death sightings in this book. The first one is when Bjorn Hammerhawk is accidentally killed by the Ghana as he's inspecting it. He meets death after he dies and death makes a very fun pun on his name. I really appreciated the I've been I've been told I should try to make the occasion a little more enjoyable. <laughs> I I enjoyed that bit. It seems kind of counterintuitive to like the, what the the arbiters basically pulled him up on and got rid of his job for being too like lenient. I feel like making jokes is kind of like not what they want. <laughs> They're like we don't it's a very, very small moment, but he comes for Big Fido. Because he goes, Big Fido, yes, heal. Mm. So we get that as well. And then only a couple pages later, he comes to collect Cuddy as well. And Cuddy almost refuses to go with him, which I think is interesting. Like, he wants to stay because he's not going to be properly buried. Or he doesn't think that he will. Of course, he does end up being properly buried. And that's actually where Carrot gives the gone, right? Because that's the whole thing is that he doesn't have an axe to be buried with. But so so Carrot ends up hiding the gone with him. So he has a weapon for the afterlife. Yeah. There were zero references to sort in this book. I didn't see any at all. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I I keyword searched sort because I was reading a a digital copy of it. No results. I'm going to just keyword search the word pyramid. Nope. The only nope. result for Pyramids is in the uh, other books by Terry Pratchett, uh, the Discworld series, Pyramids. So we're entirely sortless. You know what? how this makes me feel? How does it make you feel? Out of sorts. <laughs> <laughs> that is a pun or a play on words. Yeah. The first footnote is on page three of my book, where it's talking about Edward Deeth. If he'd been trained as a fool, he would have invented satire and made dangerous jokes about the patrician. If he'd been trained as a thief, footnote, but no gentleman would dream of being trained as a thief. He would have been broken into the palace and stolen something very valuable from the patrician. So that's that's our first footnote is on page three. What was your favorite footnote? The one about the retrophrenologist. That's the one I put too! It's so good. So it's when... Uh, Vimes is being fi- he's being fired upon from the tower and they go to um, they go to, what's his name, Zorgo? Yeah. Zorgo. He takes, co- he takes cover in Zorgo's office, basically. 
Uh, and Zorgo is uh, what they call a retrophrenologist, and it's explained in the footnote. It works like this. Phrenology, as everyone knows, is a way of reading someone's character, aptitude, and abilities by examining the bumps and hollows on their head. Therefore, according to the kind of logical thinking that characters that characterizes the Ankh-Morpork mind, it should be possible to mold someone's character by giving them carefully graded bumps in all the right places. You can go into a shop and order an artistic temperament with a tendency to introspection and a side order of hysteria. What you actually get is hit on the head with a selection of different sized mallets, but it creates employment, it keeps the money in circulation, and that's the main thing. And then, <laughs> it's like, because then that coupled with when he actually begins operating on the guy that's there, where he's like, what are you here for? You here to cure your indecision? Um, uh, I, yes, no, like, he's having it on, it's like, yeah, and then he said, and it's like, and he says, like, completely truthfully, this won't hurt a bit. <laughs> I I just love it because phrenology is like a real I mean obviously it's a pseudoscientific yeah. theory that was really popular in the 19th century and it, this is the logical conclusion of such a theory if you believe that the bumps on people's heads indicate their personality then you should be able to actually recreate it with a series of mallets <laughs> yeah no it just reminds me of there's a line in Great Expectations um where Magwitch says, you know, like, because he's a prisoner, he says that instead of measuring their head, his head, they should have spent more time measuring his stomach because he was slowly being starved to death. And that, that that's something I think, like, Pratchett is kind of, especially with Ankh Morpork, because I said, like, it's closest in analog to Victorian London. And, like, he's writing out of the same tradition that, that Charles Dickens was and tackling a lot of similar economic inequalities... You know, and that like that kind of uh, the way a city exists, it's in the same way that Dickens did. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. This does draw those parallels. I mean, those parallels are there regardless. What was something that made you laugh out loud in this book? All those moments, especially like when Cuddy went to the the th- um went to the Guild of Butchers and was like, "Give me what I want," and then he's like, "Well, you haven't told me." Or when Carrot goes in and he's like. If, where he's been told, oh, you know, if, if you're refused, if you're refused, you have to leave. And he's like, it, you know, if you don't answer my questions, I'll be, to- I'll have to do what I was told by, by Vimes and Sergeant <laughs> Colin. And that strikes the fear of God into them. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to do it. I would be very regretful if I had to do it. The thing that made me laugh the most, all of those were very funny, but one of the things that made me laugh the most is there's an on-running joke, but the first time it happens is pretty early in the book when Vimes and Carrot figure out the whole thing where Edward Deeth showed Chubby a mirror, and that's why he exploded. And Vimes says, we're dealing here, said Vimes, with a twisted mind. Oh no, you think so? Yes. But no, you can't be right. Because Nobby was with us the whole time. Not Nobby, said Vimes testily. Whatever he might do to a dragon, I doubt he'd make it explode. There's stranger people in this world than Corporal Nobbs, my lad. Carrot's expression slid into a rictus of intrigued horror. Gosh, he said. But Nobby was with us the whole time! What is Nobby's deal? Because, like, Lady Sybil (laughs) thinks that he's, like, that he's a grand gentleman. And he's got, like, he does, like, you know, ballroom dancing, isn't it? Like, 
Folk dancing. He does folk dancing. Folk dance. Yeah. So what? What is it that like Nobby does? Like, because there's no indication really. Bar, they they say that he's like a disgrace to the human race in Guards Guards, and that he doesn't look like he's human. People think that he's a dwarf a lot, but he's just a short human. But like, mm. w- what has he done? A lot, I guess. I mean, they do talk about him robbing corpses on battlefields. But that's just his way. I love that. I love that. They're like, he, you know, oh, we'll bring the body back, but it'll be without all the jewelry that he may have had on it. But that's just our <laughs> Nobby's way. That's just uh, our <laughs> Nobby's way. Yeah. So I, I, I loved that. That was, and it was an on running joke because I think somebody else says that later. And Cuddy's like, no, Nobby was with Colin the whole time. Yeah. It's the, it's the patrician, I think. Yeah, I think so. What's something that made you think in this book? I'm going to have to go with personal isn't the same as important. Yeah, that's a really good one. No, obviously, like, the the boots theory of economic inequality. But, like, you know, we've talked a lot about that, and especially with now that being implemented in the real world to track how, like, poverty affects those living in it. You know, how inflation and poverty affects the people living in, in poverty. That it's kind of like, it, it's more well known. But, like, that's kind of a realization you need to come to as you get older, is that, like, personal isn't, like, isn't the same as important. It's such a black and white way of viewing the world, which I think is why Vimes is, like, confused by it. But at the same time, it's very true. Because, yeah, I think that a lot of people get the personal confused with important. And that's... yeah. Why we have a lot of the problems that we're having now with things like masking and personal responsibility and all of those things. So, yeah, I, I we were on the same page because I had that down and I had the boots theory down as well. Although I also really liked at the end when Vetinari takes Carrot to the throne, which, like we've said before, is a very Lord of the Rings setup where he sits in the patrician's oh, chair yeah, and, and then the throne. It's just gold foil. Yeah. And it's like rotten in the back. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was really a good, a great symbol of Ogmore Park, but also the monarchy in general. I thought that was very interesting. Well, yeah, especially because then when they find out that there is a sewer system, the Via Cloaca, um, mm. underneath it, where it's like, Ogmore Park is built on loam, yeah, but Ogmore Park is also built on Ogmore Park. It's, you know, the city has cannibalized itself. And so, like, the fact that the, this, the symbol of what old Ogmore Park was... The only one that's remaining above ground is a throne that's rotting. And right. the only thing that remains underground is a sewer system. You know, so like, it's basically, it's basically like, oh, some, there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very similar to that. All right. So, next week, we go supernatural with Eric. I like that the original title of it was Faust, and then it's crossed out, and then you have Eric. That should tell you something about what this book is about. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? You can find me on Twitter, mainly, at Spicy Nigel. Recently, I've just been tweeting about Elden Ring and my dissertation, getting really into Elden Ring. Elden Ring is a great game. It's a great fun game where I have zero problems. <laughs> Uh, and then you can find my other shows, uh, Archive of Myers and Hyperfixations, wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. 
You can also find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog at Monkey Backlog. And currently in Monkey Off My Backlog, we have a second series going each week called Sam Watches Star Trek, where I interview Sam about watching Star Trek. So if you like Star Trek and you like the setup of this podcast, I have another one with my partner, Sam. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club, like I mentioned before, and you can find us on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. Lady Sybil smiled and shut the door behind her and went to feed the dragons. Dearest Mum and Dad, well, here is amazing news for I am now Captain. It has been a very busy and varied week all around, as I shall now recount. And only one thing more. There was a large house in one of the nicer areas of Ankh, with a spacious garden, with a children's treehouse in it, and quite probably a warm spot by the fire, and a window breaking. Gaspode landed on the lawn and ran like hell towards the fence, flower-scented bubbles streaming off his coat. He was wearing a ribbon with a bow on it, and carrying in his mouth a bowl labelled Mr. Huggy. He dug his way frantically under the fence and squirmed into the road. A fresh pile of horse droppings took care of the floral smell, and five minutes of scratching removed the bow. Not a bloody flea left, he moaned, dropped the bowl, and I nearly had the complete set. Wee you! I'm well out of that, huh? Gaspo brightened up. It was Tuesday. That meant steak and suspicious organs pie at the Thieves' Guild, and the head cook there was known to be susceptible to a thumping tail and a penetrating stare. And holding an empty bowl in your mouth and looking pathetic was a surefire winner, if Gaspo was any judge. It shouldn't take too long to claw off Mr. Huggy. Perhaps this wasn't the way it ought to be, but it was the way it was. On the whole, he reflected, it could have been a lot worse. The end.